Turkey hunting is one of my favorite things. And one of the key tools I use for turkey hunting is the Onyx Hunt Map. I use it incessantly when I'm hunting turkeys. Being able to find a new piece of public or gaining permission on private opens up opportunities for gobblers. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you this spring. Use the code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt. You'll find more birds this season. I'm telling you, I rely on Onyx Hunt. When I'm hunting turkeys, it is an invaluable turkey hunting tool. Hey, I'm excited to share our newest sponsor here on the Meat Eater Podcast, which is Poncho Outdoors. The reason I'm excited is I buy their shirts anyways. Dude, they make some good shirts. And they even have an option where if you're like a skinny dude, you can click like the skinny dude thing. It's great. Based in Austin, Texas, Poncho is committed to crafting the world's best outdoor shirts for men. Poncho is only sold on their own website. So head over to ponchooutdoors.com, use code MEATEATER, for a free hat or t-shirt with any purchase of a shirt. Poncho offers free shipping and returns, so you can try them out risk-free. Many of you know Axis deer is considered to be the best-tasting venison on the planet. I've been hearing that for years. And that those deer cause some ecological harm. Well, Maui Nui Venison is bringing those Axis deer to the market. So you can get some fresh cuts and sticks shipped to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by OnX Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Download the Hunt app from the iTunes or Google Play Store. Know where you stand with OnX. All right. Can I call you Professor Doug Emlin? That's right. It works. Okay. Tell people what you do. I'm a biologist. I'm an evolutionary biologist, and I study animal weapons. At? University of Montana. See how I teed you up there? <laughs> yep. See okay, how quickly that, I that forgot? got that take care of. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm a biologist at the University of Montana, and uh, most of my time I work on rhinoceros beetles with horns, but more generally I'm interested in how and why animal weapons get really big. Including deer, teeth, saber tooths. Yeah. Including all of those things. Claws. We can talk about any of them that you want to. I, one of the things I stumbled on a few years ago while trying to write a book was realizing that all these things that we'd learned about insects and about beetles applied to things like deer. And then the more I looked and the more I dug into the, the sort of nitty gritty of the biology, the more convinced I became that the same logic, the same rules apply to all these cases of really extreme weapons, including, to my astonishment, military technologies. Yeah, so, that, that's, I guess what, even that's though where this gets interesting. Sort of day-to-day research is on is on rhinoceros beetles. The fact is, the concepts I study, the things I think about, apply just as much to military technologies as they do to animal weapons. Okay, uh, a couple quick things. You yeah. know, uh, do you know that you know, you know my sister-in-law. I just figured this out two days ago. Juanita. Yes. Who is now the? She's a county. I know. She yeah, just you're, got one, you're one of her constituents. <laughs> All right. You remember when uh, Clinton was being impeached and, and there was this debate about whether or not character matters? I do. 
Yeah, she has character. <laughs> I think I could have told you that. But I remember I Rush Limbaugh said, character is above all else. At the time, he felt that. And um, yeah, she fits that. Uh, point two. You're comparing her to Rush Limbaugh. No, no. I'm saying that. He's comparing no. her to Bill Clinton. No, I'm saying that. <laughs> he can't win. There was a debate. Like, You're did saying you need she's to have, got character, I get the, Okay, there was a debate awesome. at the time in the 90s. There was, a, like, there was this debate where people were saying... Um, that oh you know a president does what he does and character doesn't matter, right? It's like it's it's nice that they have good character, but it's not good character is not essential for the job. And so at the time, people that were voicing the opposite opinion were understandably from the opposite side of the aisle. Got it. And so they were like, oh my God, does character ever matter? Like that's character Limbaugh. Like character's above all else. And then. You know, later in subsequent administrations, the people who voice the uh, the importance of character have dramatically shifted. But uh, I want to get to another point. Now, um, uh, I think I told you this before, Doug. That the the best one of the best lines in your book isn't your line. The Einstein quote. Yeah. What do you call it when you put a quote at the beginning of a book? I don't I've know. asked I've this all the time. One book. Epigraph. But doesn't epa mean later? You want to look it up really quick? I should know. Yeah, what's it called when you die and they write something about you? Epitaph. Yeah, that's not that. It's not that. <laughs> anyway, there's a quote. I don't have it. Do you have it in front Can of Can I hit him with the quote? Yeah, but I can't. I don't have it memorized. It's like I, I, I've, I've opened books with quotes. Oh, you got it right? Yeah. Speak yeah, so what your, is it? Speak up for yourself, Sam. Epigraph. All right. Sam cool. Lundgren coming in. Epigraph. So epigraph is before a book and epitaph is on your tombstone after you it's die. It's after yeah. you die. So epigraph is before your book and what epitaph is after you die. Make. All right. So I know not what I, it's not what he said. <laughs> Let me try again. I know not with what weapons World War Three will be fought, but World War Four will be fought with sticks and stones. It's good. It is good. And, and I guess I can speak to it for a minute about why I chose to put it at the front of the book. Please. It felt prescient somehow for a book on extreme weapons. And one of the things I hinted at is that I, I learned along the way while writing this book that all these things that we'd stumbled on as a biologist applied to military technologies. And part of the exercise of writing this book was really digging into the military literature and reading about historical arms races in the deep past and and looking at these parallels and really trying to unpack the parallels between the animal and the military weapons. And that meant, to do that right, that meant coming full forward and taking a really hard look at modern times like the Cold War and post-Cold War situations. And Einstein wrote that during the Cold War, very much in that mindset and speaking to the I mean, I guess the spectacular, devastating capabilities of modern weapons of mass destruction. And I think his point is it doesn't really matter what the next world, you know, what the third world war is going to be fought with, because pretty much anything they use these days is going to be so destructive that everything will be rubble. And the people that manage to stagger past that are going to be hitting each other on the head with sticks and stones because it's the only thing that will be left. There's a... So kind of sobering, but it is a reflection of the reality of where modern weapons of mass destruction are. There's a 30 or 40,000, one of those 30 or 40,000 year old skull from Europe that they'd had. Um, it was a pretty well-preserved, like intact skull that they had. And it had a, a peculiar concave <laughs> cracking on it. 
It suggested the person had been struck Well, they'd, with they'd pondered over it, like whether it was post-mortem or not. Like they thought maybe just soil compaction or something had happened. Um, and then they wound up, they worked up some kind of technology where they can make these, uh, like a, something that's a facsimile of human bone and fill it with, uh, what do you call that stuff you shoot guns at? Ballistic gel. Mm-hmm. Fill it with a ballistic gel. See what kind of and then, cast you and make then, from yeah, that. Yeah, and then give it various injuries. And um, oh, yeah. they determined that 30,000 years ago, he had likely been killed by someone who was left-handed and facing him. They could tell that. <laughs> that's pretty awesome. Okay. Uh, okay, that's my favorite line from the book. And not just because, not, I'm not pointing out that you didn't write it, but it's a great, it's a perfect, it's the, no. <laughs> I haven't taken it that way. It's a really, no, it's a really good, uh, you know, deal. The best line in the book was written it's by somebody deal. else. It's okay. My favorite new word that I learned in your book, which is called animal weapons. Like you get, the, the title gets right to it. The title doesn't leave you guessing. I don't know. I mean, it does. It's not like Blood Meridian. You're it's like, oh, what the hell is that about? See, actually, it's like that's animal a great weapons. book, though. That it's is a great book. Brutal, great but the book, title but... doesn't tell you what the book is about. Okay. A lot of but in all fairness, animal weapons doesn't necessarily speak to the fact that half the book is about the military. Well, so we struggled with titles. My kids, that was my the kids last would, thing my that kids we would point out to you that we, are, that we are animals. We are. That is correct. So, but that might not be the, how the average person on the, you know, in the bookstore looking at the shelves would think about it. So, Okay, one more quick comment, and then I'm going to have you dig in on something. Um, my favorite word that I learned in this book is supinate. <laughs> supinate. That was a new one for me, too. You didn't know that word? No, I do now. Explain to folks it is who can supinate and why it matters. Cats can supinate their forelimbs, and it refers to the f- way that they can articulate and twist the way that we can with our wrists, too, but most other carnivores like dogs or wolves cannot. They can articulate and twist their forelimbs. And it is relevant, and I talked about it in the book in the context of the evolution of the extreme canines in things like saber-toothed cats. And, and, the, and the idea there is that those weapons are so big, I mean, they're phenomenal for piercing and for killing really big prey, but they're also really vulnerable to breakage and snapping. And so the cats need to be able to plunge the teeth in and pull them right back out again. You can't just lock them in and hang or you'll snap oh, they don't. your teeth. Okay. Well, maybe they could, but the only way they could do that is if they can hold on to the animal and position themselves. You know, if it, otherwise you sink your teeth in, the animal runs away, it snaps your teeth off. Yeah, so you think being like a able hollow. to yeah. hold on to that animal with while these supinated forelimbs while it's trying to run like hell away from you is part of how we think or the paleontologists think these cats are able to not snap their teeth. But they did. You know, you look at the La Brea Tar Pit fossils, they had snap teeth I went there on my time. first date with my wife. Did you? Yeah. That's a good first date. Yeah. But so they snapped their teeth all the time. I mean, that was definitely the big price tag of having teeth like that. Well, one of the price tags. Because you think about it, like you look at a wolf dragging an elk down. He doesn't. He can't supinate, so he has to do it all with his teeth, just hanging on for dear life. But they also do it as a group. So wolves tend to hunt as a pack, and they can bring down prey by pulling on them from different sides. I think there's a debate actually about saber tooths. For a long time, it was assumed that they were solitary hunters, and now there's people arguing that they might have been social too. But no, really? I don't know. Not my forte. I work on beetles, but no. There's been a bunch of stuff that's come out on saber tooth. I mean, I, I, they were a real catalyst for me. We can get we can get into this in whatever order you want, but most of the kinds of weapons I that I okay, then I'll, we'll come back to that. I feel like I want you to start out by talking if you're comfortable with this. 
the, the well, about the white and brown <laughs> mice on the white sand. Okay. Because uh, unless you think that's a bad, am I messing my job up or am no, I doing my job we good? We can do this in whatever order you want. Uh, the logic that the I got one to, that I might be able to wedge in ahead of that. Can I try? Ooh, ooh, maybe. Please go for it. What I just want to know what maybe what like the what your definition of a weapon is. Damn it, Yanni, that's the first question, and I skipped it. Look, <laughs> look, look. Is what it, are animal is it weapons? On there, what are animal weapons? All right, all right, Sam. That's number one. Back me up. So this is one I struggled with when I was trying to research the book too. There is, really isn't a simple definition. I mean, if you think about it. Teeth, claws, anything that you stab or claw or slash with, clearly that's a weapon. You think of tusks and antlers that you lock and spar with, those are weapons. But chemical things that animals produce as a toxin to spray or inject, oh, those are sure. weapons of a sort. Skunk sand. And if you start looking at military arsenals and you start looking at what soldiers carry into battle, they carry a lot more than than the firearms. They've got communication equipment. They've got camo that helps them blend with their backgrounds. They've got Kevlar that protects them. From certain vantages, all of that stuff could be considered part of the arsenal of an individual soldier. And so you can start to subdivide it into things that mostly function for protection and defense, things that function for attack and offense. I don't actually want to go down that path of what is a weapon because there's a million things that could fit under that. What I will say is I focus on a particular subset of animal weapons, and those are the things that get really big. And so sort of from my perspective as an evolutionary biologist, I'm constantly stumped by the fact that there are species out there with these things sticking off of them that are ridiculous. I mean, any hunter loves a good rack of antlers and we love looking at caribou or elk, but you step back at the, look at them like you're an alien from another planet looking at these things for the first time. It's absurd. It's absolutely insane that these animals would have that much stuff sticking off their heads. And as a biologist, I want to make sense of that. We know it's awkward. We know it's expensive. Under what kinds of circumstances will the benefits of a weapon like that be so profound that animals with these huge weapons do better than other individuals out there with weapons that, that are smaller or less extreme? And so that's my sort of thing as a biologist. Under what kinds of social or physical environments or circumstances will sort of the stars align so that the really big weapons win. And so, so it's, it comes back, I'm not giving you an easy answer to what is a weapon. There's a lot of things that qualify as a weapon, but I'm kind of hoping today we're gonna focus on things that are unquestionably weapons and they're the big stuff, the tusks and the horns and the antlers and the, you know, the saber-toothed cat canines. Okay, so here's, but here's what I want you to talk about. Here's why I wanted to get into the white and brown mice. Yep. Okay, because you yep. have a... Uh, I'm gonna switch up on nice page. Way. You have a page on page six. Nice to know you made it to page six. <laughs> yeah, buddy, I made it all the way through this book, man. <laughs> so on page six, you have a quote where you say, "Whenever individuals differ in how successful they are at propagating their kind, evolution occurs." So keeping that in mind, and knowing that this is something that you chose to bring up early on in your book, tell the story about the white mice and the brown Good. mice in the white sand. And that's the reason I told that story was to try to provide sort of a really simple, intuitive, real-world example to hang that logic on. So the essence of evolutionary biology, people, people feel threatened by it, people misunderstand it, people run with it in all kinds of crazy directions, but it is basic. It really is a simple process. It, it rests on the fact that if you look at any population of anything out there, you pick your favorite species, but in this case, we'll start with old field mice, 
and you go out and you start looking at the individuals. You look at the mice. You're not just saying, hey, there's 682 of them, or you know, there's more this year than last year. You're actually looking at the mice. What you're going to find is they're not the same. Some of them are heavier. Some of them are lighter. Some of them are darker. Some of them have, I don't know, longer legs, bigger teeth. If you go out there as a biologist and you start measuring things, you're going to find that there's variation, that some of the mice are faster. Some of them age more quickly. Some of them digest things better. Some of them smell better. There's tons of things about the mice that are different from each other. And, yeah. and evolution is about turnover. It's how some types do better. It's winners and losers. Some types do better than others. And the ones that do better end up living when others die and they end up reproducing when others don't. And those are the ones that end up producing offspring that carry with them these same characteristics. And if you look at that population over time, from one generation to the next generation to the next generation, you follow that, you'll find that the average characteristics shift. They get darker, they get faster, they get better at smelling a certain thing. Populations are always changing as they sort of adapt to the environments around them. That's evolution. That's the process that I'm looking at. So the, the light you and dark mice is a really clear example. I can tell the story if you want. Of no, how I want you to, but I want, I gotta, like, I want to, a couple of things that that brings up. Sure. Is, is, uh, so, many, so often in biology, you talk to people who are looking at population, Yep. like the general sense. And you're talking about looking at the individual differences. Yes. And I think a good way for people to understand that in a way that struck me when I was reading your book is that when we, when we humans look at other humans, we completely gloss over. We're not like, oh, they all look the same. You're right. We are really good they at got, looking at the differences, right? All you see is His nose is too on long. Your eyes are blue. That <laughs> on the walk over here, I saw blue. a man. I'm like, that man has an extraordinarily long neck. It wasn't 30 minutes ago I thought that. Because you just like you have a trained eye, so you just like the same way you can go, you can recognize a person and pick them out of hundreds of people. And so to to talk about how mice, we can't see it because all we see is its mouseness. That's a great analogy, though, because people ought to recognize that we're really good at seeing those differences in ourselves. But what you have to accept then is those kinds of differences exist in everything, from you know, from plants to snails to mice. Every population out there has sort of standing genetic variation. It has differences among individuals in the traits that you might look at and measure. And sometimes those differences matter. Sometimes individuals that run faster actually do better at getting away from predators and they live longer or, you know, who knows what the traits are. In my case, in today's interview case, you know, we're going to be sort of playing around with what kinds of conditions cause the individuals with the really big weapons to win, to do better than the other individuals, because those are the conditions that will lead to the evolution of big weapons. But, but the light and dark mice, it's a, it's a simple example of a real world population that's been studied really well, all the way down to people have figured out the genomes, they know the individual genes, they know the mutations to the genes that contributed to the traits. So, so from a biology standpoint, it's a beautifully complete story. But at its basic, it's really simple. Mice are dark, they're brown. They usually go forage at night because there's predators that can spot them and eat them. Owls are still really good at seeing contrast in the dark. So their main predators when they're out at night are owls. And, and if you're a mouse running around on dark soils in most of their habitat and you're too light, the contrast makes you stand out and you get nailed by the owls. And so owls have historically kept mouse populations pretty dark brown because any that were too light got nailed. And the ones, they got culled from the population because they stood out. And then a few thousand years ago, mice colonized, they, they expanded their range and they colonized the coastal sand dunes around the Gulf of, you know, the Gulf in the Southern United States around the coast of Florida. And you get out onto these dunes 
And all of a sudden, the dirt's not rich and dark and brown anymore. You're out on sand dunes. It's like piles of salt. I mean, some places it's really white. And so what happened is the mice are still being mice. They're doing all the same things, but now they're running around at night on white. And all of a sudden, the dark mice stood out really badly, and they got hammered by the owls because they kept seeing these dark mice and nailing them. And by pure dumb luck chance, a small number of these mice carried mutations in their genome that screwed around with the, the pathway that makes the dark melanin pigment in the fur, and they happened by chance to be lighter more of their fur was white and less of it was dark. And normally in the main areas, they get hammered because they look bad. They're, they're too light. They stand out. But out here on these outer fringes, those individuals did better because they were lighter in color and they were more likely to hide than the dark mice. And so out on these coastal populations, you know, owls are still being owls. They're just going for whatever they find. But in those populations, they're eating all the dark mice. And it was the ones that carried these, these random genetic mutations that made them lighter. Those mice survived. They had all the kids. And then over time, these mice populations got whiter and whiter. And now we have two sort of side-by-side -side areas with white mice and dark mice. And we think it was driven by selection from these predators. And so the experiment I talk about in the book was a classic they set up in the 70s where they had captive owls. It's, like, it's, so, it's great because it's, it's so really, obvious. They trucked in truckloads of sand and they created arenas with white soil like, it, like from the coast. And then they had other arenas with dark soil. And then they just released mice and let the owls do what the owls did. And they showed really cleanly that on the dark soil, it's the white mice that get nailed. And on the light soil, it's the dark mice that get nailed. And they were able to show that the owls were sort of, to use the technical language, acting as agents of selection. They were selecting for dark or light mice on these different backgrounds. So it's a nice example of a process of winners and losers. The color of the mouse differed from mouse to mouse. And in each environment, it mattered. You, the ones that had the right color combinations lived. The ones that had the bad combinations stood out, like, you know, like a hunter wearing the wrong camo. You stand out, you get noticed. And in that case, because they were getting eaten, it ended up that some mice were being more successful at surviving and reproducing in each area. They passed on their inherited characteristics and the population changed over time, it evolved. So that now several thousand years later, you know, a couple thousand mouse generations later, those two populations are totally different from each other. I mean, they look like different species. One's white and one's dark. And that was a very recent sort of gradual evolutionary shift in the color. Do and they so have, I picked do they have it as a simple Linnean? example of the process, but that process is happening all the time in just about anything out there. It's on us as the scientists to figure out, okay, what are the things, the differences among individuals? What are the variations in this species that, excuse me, that matter? Why do they matter? Why are these ones the ones that are winning and these ones are the ones that are losing? And we can go out and sort of study the process of evolution in the wild, in real populations. And again, that's the, it's just a conceptual backdrop to turn around and then say, why do weapons get big? What I like, what, what strikes me about that, that quote that Steve just read and, and what, what you're saying, and I know that happened <clears throat> over whatever thousand generations. Might have even been <clears throat> less, but it was fast. Yeah, but, you know, the, the pose, posing evolution that way, I, I think, gives it a little bit more of a, an immediacy. I think to a lot of people, it's, it's kind of an abstraction. You know, it's something that is working on like, macro population levels, but it really does come down to the individual and it can ha change very rapidly. I'm really glad you brought that up. Actually, if you forgive me for a digression here, I'm really glad you brought that up because I run into this in my classes. People have this antiquated notion of the evolutionary biologist as this old white haired geezer with a big beard to arguing about apes and 
that's not what modern, I mean, truly my major professor was a white-haired guy with a really long beard. But, <laughs> Did he argue about apes? <laughs> no. Wasn't that your, wasn't that your dad? <laughs> no, no. will take but, issue with that. No, He's I, a I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, uh, no, I didn't no, no, mean, no. I didn't mean it that way, but wasn't your father an evolutionary Both biologist as well? my father and my grandfather That's what I thought, an evolutionary yeah. biologist. So, Seriously? Yeah. This is like the family business. Yeah, it's a third generation. But, but coming back His to father was point. one of the, the founders of the, the, the field of animal the behavior. Field, yeah. Really? Yeah. I broke away. I don't work on birds. I work on beetles. That was my radical. You're like, oh, I'll, show, I'll show you, Dad. <laughs> yeah, exactly, man. Bigger sample sizes. Mom and Dad, weapons. you're not gonna like no. this. But uh, <laughs> but back to the reality. What is an evolutionary biologist? Evolutionary biology today is incredibly relevant to things that that everybody cares about. It's not a bunch of old timers arguing about apes. It's about genomes and genetics and medicine. So huge, just to list a couple issues that matter to people every day. People on farms have to deal with the fact that they go out there and try to control pest populations on their crops by spraying pesticides and very quickly the insect pests evolve resistance and they stop being susceptible. That is evolution, no matter what people want to call it, it's turnover. You're killing a bunch of the pests. Some of the pests happen by chance to have variants in their genomes that allow them to detoxify the chemicals that you're spraying. Everybody else is dead. Those ones survive. They have lots of kids. All of a sudden, your pest population explodes with yeah, all these no animals. Competition and no animal. competition. They're all dead, right? And yet, in, so suddenly, you can detoxify this chemical that nobody else can. That, that's the winner, winners and losers. They start reproducing, and the, the population evolves fast within it. You know, most of the pesticides are obsolete within five to 10 years because insect populations adapt so quickly. Herbicides, same story. Yeah. You see the same thing with antibiotics. Yeah, We're running into awesome. huge problems now where you go to the hospital and things that used to be standard can kill you because the antibiotics that we have available to us don't work. And again, people don't like to use the E word, but the fact is that's evolution. You're, when you apply a dose of antibiotics, you are trying to kill a population of bacteria. And if you kill them all, you win. Population goes extinct, your infection is cured. But if there's any genetic variation among individuals within that bacteria population that allow a few of them to survive the drug, just what you said, Janice, you kill all the competition, they're all dead. And the they few survivors gravy, have, yeah. yeah, they got gravy. It's awesome. There's no competition. There's all these resources. They explode. And now your population has shifted from one generation to the next or over a couple dozen bacterial generations. It has shifted from susceptible to resistant. And you, as a, as a doctor applying a drug, have driven that you've acted as an agent of selection and you've driven the evolution of that population. So modern evolutionary biology is about drug design. It's about trying to figure out ways to combat antibiotic resistant disease strains. It's about public health, trying to engineer mosquitoes so that they can't carry Zika or dengue and, and trying to figure out how to produce these engineered mosquitoes and get them in the field to spread enough that the wild populations become resistant. Or got, so people are looking at this is what GMO, GMO mosquitoes. It's not what <laughs> GMO mosquitoes. That's wild. We, yes, it's a huge industry right now. Yeah. Genetically the problem is if you mosquitoes. genetically modify a mosquito, you can engineer one that can no longer carry malaria or Zika or dengue. And I've had dengue. It sucks. I mean, if, it, this is a big deal. If you can figure out how to make a mosquito that normally is a vector that carries the disease incapable of harboring the pathogen, you've done a lot. But you've just engineered this, you know, screwed up genetically modified mosquito. You introduce it into the wild. Yeah. And it's not going to outcompete all the other normal mosquitoes. So you could spend a fortune building it in the lab, but trying to implement it in the field is a problem. And that's where evolutionary biology it's comes dead, in. How the deadliest can we animal. figure out what kind of selective, you know, how can you figure out ways to, to let 
something that is otherwise deleterious spread within a population so that it gets abundant enough that the mosquito population writ large stops being capable of sustaining the infections and involves a lot of theory, involves a lot of evolutionary biology. So that was a big tangent, but yeah, I'm glad you brought it up. Evolutionary biology is a vibrant, thriving field that's not arguing about apes. It's about molecular biology, genetics, genomics. It all comes back to the white mice, the light and dark mice turnover. Yeah. When are there winners and losers? When individuals do better than other individuals and the traits that make them do better are heritable or passed on, you've got the raw material for evolution. You watch that population over time and it's going to change. Okay, let me hit you with this one. Is it still in your circle? Yep. Um, do we still talk, we meaning you, do you guys still talk about um, there being a difference between natural selection and sexual selection is it do you still that's view- not right i thought you're going to go between biological evolution and cultural evolution but we can get there later between natural selection and sexual selection like yeah is it do you, do you still view these as he's like distinct- do you think your audience is going to know what sexual selection is well go ahead and Should explain step back and define yeah. it so so do it, do it through deer antlers all right so natural selection tends it really a good way to think about it is survival it's which are the individuals that are going to grow the fastest they're going to, to you know pro- get access to the best territories, outcompete other individuals for access to food. They're going to be the most resistant to pathogens. Who are the healthiest animals in the population and the ones most likely to survive a winter cold snap or to get through, you know, a reproductive season? It's all about sort of living and dying. Sexual selection is so almost like a subset. It, it fits. It's also winners and losers. And it's, it's very much an agent of selection that can cause populations to evolve, but it really focuses on reproduction. It's recognizing that even if everybody survives, they're not all going to reproduce. You have winners and losers when it comes to reproduction too. And that means that you've got individuals with traits like big antlers who are more likely to win access to the harems or to the territories that are more likely to breed with the females in the population and transmit their genetic material to the next generation than other individuals in the population that might be more sickly, smaller antlers, not as good a condition, younger, less dominant, all those things. You've got, it's, a, it's the same raw material, variation. You go out into a, a deer population or an elk population, measure 100 bulls. They're not the same. Some of them are bigger than others. Some of them are stronger. Some are more aggressive. Some of them have a lot bigger antlers than others. Those traits matter. And the weapons matter a lot. And in that case, sexual selection is the process by which, you know, individuals with big antlers reproduce more than individuals with small antlers. And since ultimately the currency for evolution isn't whether you live or die, it's whether you reproduce. What matters is who are the individuals in the population now that are contributing offspring, their genetic material to the next generation. That's the end game. Doesn't matter if you're the healthiest, strongest animal out there. Doesn't matter if you're resistant to every disease in the book and you live forever. If you fail in the game of producing offspring in a biological population of something like a deer, a it's over. End. It's a genetic dead end. It, and so the real end game is reproduction. And sexual selection is all the stuff, the crazy sperm competition, battles, female choice, male competition, all the things that happen in real world animal populations that cause some animals to win and other animals to lose in the game of reproduction. Okay, man, that was a bunch of things I want to ask you about. 
Trotter, Am Sam, I going off too far in no, this no, 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 okay. no, 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 You can great. shut me up if you need to. No, no, no that's yep. good. Sam, help, help, me keep tra- help me keep track, Yanni. Okay, I want you to explain a couple things. I want you to talk about the idea that um, the way in which differentiated landscapes, okay? <laughs> no, it's not okay. Kern sent me that on your... I meant to ask you, and I have no idea what you mean by this, so... You were talking... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. Okay, so I want to do differentiated landscapes. I don't know what that is. I'll tell you. Oh, okay. And I want to do... I'm not using your word. I'm using my That's word. That's right. I don't know, you'll what know what I'm talking about. When I, you'll know what I'm talking about when I explain it. You learn supernated. I'm learning differentiated landscapes. And I want... Uh, and I want you to talk about um, the diff. Like you mentioned earlier, like you could have like six bull elk, right? Yeah. That the difference in size, bo- the how they can develop the difference in size of their bodies, which are like relatively homogenous, versus the difference in size of their antlers. Yes, this I can which, talk about. What does that have to do with differentiated landscapes? Two different ideas, but now I'll explain differentiated landscapes. Okay, you're that talking, one I got. That you're one talking I talk in your about. book about what happens with an animal population where there's little pockets of good habitat or little mm. bottlenecks, like a water source, yep. a certain food source, rather than this rather than a landscape where all the resources are equally distributed now and, I know and, what you mean. and omnipresent. Huh. Okay. So that there's no sort of like cool spot to hang out. Yes. Which one of those, which one of those do you want to do first? Well, let's start with the second one, the landscape idea. That was the first one. That was the first one? Yeah, yeah. differentiated landscapes. <laughs> I, I'm with Doug. I think that one, that one came second. Whichever, no, it's a let's lie. start with that one. It's a lie. So, so okay. differentiated landscapes. you're going to have potential for individuals say elk to be competing with each other over access to say females but you can do beetles too because i think i think you explain it like there's a wound on a tree because actually it's a better it's a better tool for this it's just fewer people are used to thinking about beetles the way i'm used to thinking about beetles so in any situation if the landscape is uniform and what I mean by that, I don't mean Kansas, cornfield. Not, not differentiated. I mean the resources <laughs> that the animals depend on, if they're distributed uniformly in space, then where are you going to guard? What the hell are you going to fight over? I mean, I could be a bull and I could, or a beetle, and I, there's my spot, and I'm going to guard that, and I stand over that, and I beat the crap out of any other beetle that comes near, and if I've got big enough weapons, and I might pay a price to have big weapons, but, you know, I got big weapons, and I fight, and I fight, and I fight, and I'm holding that ground, and nobody else, no other males get into my territory, and there's food in my territory, but, you know, there's food over there, and food over there, and there, and there, and there. If, if the food resources are everywhere, then what have I gained? Where are the females going to go? They could go anywhere. They could feed on any spot on that landscape. And I spend all this money, not money, all these energetic resources and this cost of producing this weapon. And I fight and I fight and I fight to guard my spot. But my spot isn't any more valuable than anybody else's spots. And there's all these other beetles out there that don't bother fighting at all. And they get just as good access to food. So what in the situation where the resources are uniform, there's no benefit to fighting to guard a territory. You don't win anything because everywhere is equally good. But when you have a landscape that's, I think you meant differentiated, I would think of it as patchy, where the key resources are very rare and they're localized, they're clustered or clumped in space, like a water hole, you said. Or the beetles that we work on, they feed on wounds on the side of a tree that ooze sap. These beetles fly in and they feed on the sap, like syrup on the side of the tree. 
in most places where these beetles live, they, they've got wimpy little mouth parts. They can't drill into the trees like a woodpecker or something can. They're stuck finding a place where a branch struck the tree or where some other animal's already created a wound and it's oozing. That's a hot spot. But those things aren't everywhere. They're rare. I mean, there's only a couple hot spots within a mile radius, say, and that's where you got to be. That's the only place where the food is. That is not a uniform landscape. That's, I guess you're saying differentiated yeah, landscape. Yeah, there, yeah, patchy, there are good patchy. places to be and bad places to be. Yeah. And now, if I'm a male and I've got a weapon and I fight the crap out of all the opponents and I hold my ground and I happen to be guarding the food spot, I win. I'm the only one in town that's got it. All the other males can't get it because I'm keeping them away. And where are the females going to go? They're coming to me because I'm sitting on the only spot that's good. So when you have landscapes that are patchy and there are sort of hot spots of value interspersed with large areas that aren't very good, that's the, that's the sort of physical environment that sets the stage for all this kind of stuff because it creates opportunities for winning and losing. It creates a situation where the dominant individuals can guard something that matters. And if you win those fights and you get that resource, you win. Because the females come to you, you're the male that mates with those females when they come in to feed. All the other males lose. Like 90% of the males in the population might get nothing because there's nowhere else to go and they're not strong enough to get it. That's sexual selection. It's competition about access, in this case, to a food resource, but it's a food resource that attracts all the females. So that's access to reproduction. The males that win in those fights mate with lots of females, produce lots of offspring, sire the next generation of the population, and the 90% of males that fail get nothing. It's over. They're done. So do you see less fighting in, like, the... Landscapes more, that, all, that all look the same, or yeah. do they just figure so out something else to fight about? So that's why beetles are better about. than elk, because it's hard for people to picture that in something like an ungulate or a deer. In insects, it happens all the time. A lot of times, the food resources are so dispersed that what happens is it's not the animals that are built like tanks with big horns that win. It's the animals that are really agile and that are lightweight and have good wing ratios and store energy and they fly really far. It's the ones that can search. And so you find insects where they're really good at traveling long distances looking. The, the animals are so spread out and the, uni- the landscape is so sort of uniform, there's no obvious place to be, that the ones who win are the ones that search, that can find members of the other sex the fastest. So there's some moths where the males have these antennae that are unbelievably good at detecting the smells of the females. And they're out there cruising along for wind currents, trying to pick up the scent. I mean, the military's looked into these things. They're the most sensitive chemo sensors known. They can actually detect individual molecules of these pheromones. And we've never come up with anything that's even within several orders of magnitude and being that sensitive to, you know, a chemical that we might want to detect. But these moths are really good at it because their resources are sort of uniformly or randomly distributed. And the only way to win in that game is to be better at smelling a female or better at finding a female than other males. And so competition plays out in a different way. They have huge antennae. They're really good at flying. They search, but they don't have weapons. They don't fight. Different kind of system. So they, they fall outside of your interests. Well, they're cool systems. But yeah, yeah I, like, I like the situations, your differentiated landscapes, where, where there really is a hot spot that matters. And... And if you can be the male that wins access to that resource, then you win in the evolutionary game because you're the one that gets access to the reproduction. You, you, you mentioned a couple of times so far, I feel like you should pause and explain it in greater detail, is the costs. You keep talking about 
the enormous cost or the expenditure yeah. of growing big horns or big teeth or big antlers. And I'm glad you bring that up because it gives tell me a chance me to come that. full circle back to the other half of the question, the, the fact that antlers are more variable yeah, than yeah, the I other traits because it actually ties into the costs. So in a system like this, where imagine your differentiated landscape and you imagine you're a rhinoceros beetle and there's, there's very occasionally rare wounds on the side of a tree that's your oasis. That's like it. That's where the food is. That's where all the females are going to come flying from miles around to go feed at that spot. And if you can be the male that wins that, you win everything. And it really is winning everything. I mean, in some of these populations, a very small percentage of the males do all the reproducing and 90, 95% of the males lose. Every generation, 95% of the males are gone, dead end, they fail. And in a system like that, it really pays to win. And imagine in that case, then if I'm a beetle and I've got a bump sticking off me that allows me to reach under and flip an opponent, it's going to be worth it. No matter what that costs, if I've got that and the other males don't, I've got an edge and I'm going to win in these fights. And therefore I'm the one that's reproducing and my kids and grandkids and great grandkids are the ones that populate the population. The beetles are going to start getting this horn or this thing sticking off their body that's used as a weapon. But over time, it's sort of a relative landscape. If everybody's got horns the same size and then another beetle comes out with an even bigger weapon and allows him to reach and flip his opponent before the other opponent can even reach him, then that male's going to have an edge. So the weapons are going to get bigger. And then when everybody's got weapons that big, then it's the one with even bigger weapons that wins. And this process sort of cycles and ratchets and the weapons get bigger and bigger and bigger. And as they get bigger, they get more expensive. I know it seemed like I forgot your question, but oh, where no, I'm man. going with that no, is man. that this I, process... I, I thought you, you forgot get, it, but you were still doing you good. You get caught in what we call an arms race, and, it, and these things start ratcheting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and along the way, they get more and more and more expensive. And so when you start looking at costs and animal weapons, we can talk about costs and military weapons too. They're very expensive. But the costs get really staggering. So, so a rhinoceros beetle, the, the ones that we work on, a male puts 30% of his body weight into a weapon. I mean, I think about that. I weigh probably 180. That's like, that's like a 60 pound thing on top of my head. Be like this table glued to the top of my head. That's what these beetles are carrying around on their heads all day. That's a huge investment. It costs in terms of resources that they need to grow that structure because all the material that goes into that coffee table isn't going into my heart or my lungs or my brain or anything else. I'm putting it all into the coffee table. I'm putting it into the weapon. So there's an allocation cost. Then you got to carry this thing around everywhere you go. It's awkward and heavy. It makes it harder to fly, makes it harder to run. So there's sort of production and maintenance costs that go with it. Weapons can get really expensive. In the Beatles, putting a horn together for a male is so expensive that it forces these animals to shunt resources away from other things. So the beetles with the biggest horns have tiny eyes. And some of the species we studied have males where they've stunted genitalia and tiny testes. Really? So they're really Dude, reallocating got, yeah. in the most absurd way to get these weapons. It costs yeah, And you them. talk about deer will actually get, they'll actually get a form of, a form of osteoporosis so from their studies, antlers robbing, robbing really their cool minerals. These are studies. Yeah, because the antlers... And, and the antlers, because they regrow them every year, they have to produce these enormous expensive structures and they've got to grow fast. And as far as I know, antler bone is the fastest growing bone that's ever been described for any, any vertebrate ever. It's, it's growing at record speeds. And they're pulling, they need calcium and phosphorus and all these minerals to produce the bone. And they don't get that much of that from the leaves and the things that they feed on. 
And so the people that have looked into this and studied it found that there's no way that these bulls and bucks can get enough from their food alone. They're growing it too fast and there's just not enough of these minerals in the food that they're eating. And that's when they figured out that they're actually siphoning these things off the other bones in their body. Oh, they're wow. leaching calcium and phosphorus out of their ribs and their spine and their femurs and all the rest of the bones and reallocating it to the antlers. So that forces them to go through a period of osteoporosis during the rut before they have an opportunity to replenish those resources. Which is afterwards. a shitty time to have osteoporosis. Really bad time because <laughs> you're smacking into all these other bulls. So right when you need to fight and throw down with all these other 800-pound rivals, you've got brittle bones like an old person. It's a, it's a bad formula. And then they throw the antlers away and you got to start all over. <laughs> it's like you're not even recouping that loss. It's gone. Well, so at least everybody has expensive. osteoporosis, right? All, <laughs> yeah. all your opponents. There you go. Yeah. And but you can imagine how that would place a premium on any individuals that were in good enough condition or had access to the best foraging spots. They might have less osteo. Again, it comes back to variation. Those bulls might pay a lower cost. They might have less osteoporosis than a medium or poor quality bull that's in really crap quality territory that's also trying to produce antlers. And so it may not be equal. But yeah, they're all going through the same problem. They're all facing the same dilemma. These things are expensive. The single most valuable tool I have for chasing turkeys next to my scatter gun is the Onyx Hunt app. If I'm hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. If I'm not hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. I'm always using Onyx. I live by that stuff. I can't tell you the number of birds this app has put me on by allowing me to easily find new areas to hunt. It's invaluable. I use it all the time. Even properties I know super well. And I'm at my buddy Bubbly Doug's house. I'm using Onyx, and I've hunted this place a million times. With their compass mode, I can pinpoint exactly on the map where a gobble rang out from and then figure out the perfect spot to set up. Meaning, if I'm sitting there, let's say I'm at Bubbly Dogs, and I'm in the navel, and I hear, pow, I'll like instinctively pull up Bubbly Doug's place on Onyx, and I'll look at the topography, and I'll be like, oh, that sucker must be over in that little opening over there. Waypoints also, and the ability to share them okay comes in handy every spring whether that's revisiting old waypoints where i've been on birds before or sharing them to buddies to help put them on birds this app will help you find more turkeys on x hunt has a special offer for you too use code meat eater to receive 20 percent off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt this turkey season spring is a great time to do something with your family do some spring cleaning, which I kind of started today outside, planning outdoor activities, which I'm always doing, taking a little trip to Hawaii with your kids for spring break, which I just did, which was great. You know what else you can do for your family this spring? You can shop for life insurance with Policy Genius. Make that part of your financial planning for the year. I've said it before a thousand times, I'll say it again. When my wife and I, when we started having kids, we got serious about life insurance, and man, I felt so much better after we did. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just 292 bucks per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Even if you already have a life insurance policy through work, it may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it may not follow you if you leave your job. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com.
Hey, I'm excited to share our newest sponsor here on the Meat Eater Podcast, which is Poncho Outdoors. The reason I'm excited is I buy their shirts anyways. I don't, I don't I, listen, man, I, I rarely go into stores to buy clothes. I like to, I just buy myself online and I love their shirts. Max that I work with, Max Bard, who comes on the podcast one day. I don't know if he sent me a link to this place. I went on and bought some shirts. Dude, they make some good shirts. And they even have an option where if you're like a skinny dude, you can click like the skinny dude thing and get like a whole different cut of the shirt. It's great. Based in Austin, Texas, Poncho is committed to crafting the world's best outdoor shirts for men. They got it started out with a lightweight fishing shirt. Now they make all kinds of other lines. Western, denim, flannel, corduroy. Better fitting. Not, not all baggy. Better performing because they got modern fabrics with some stretch and breathability and way comfortable. Poncho is only sold on their own website. So head over to ponchooutdoors.com. Use code MEATEATER for a free hat or t-shirt with any purchase of a shirt. Poncho offers free shipping and returns, so you can try them out risk-free. And when it goes back to cost, a a great comparison, I think I remember this from your class back in the day, (laughs) was was that, uh, like, I think you said for a a bull elk to, uh, like, a mature bull to create the, the antlers he needs for that year, it's a similar caloric... Um, cost as a cow uh, birthing a calf. Yeah, good bring memory. It to, bring it to this was a really clever. Is that right? Are we okay on time if I explain some of these? That was a oh, really yeah, clever man. study. So point out that, that Sam Lundgren, yeah. our very own special Sam Lundgren, took <laughs> special Doug Emlin's class. Yeah. Yes, he did. I you did. What'd you get? My for animal behavior class, University of Montana. Did you ace it? Yeah, I got an A. I went back and checked. <laughs> this last time I was like, how'd I do? Yes. He did. He got an A. <laughs> I was one, one, of the, one of the greatest classes I, I ever I ever took. I did it not pay him to say that. Fascinating. <laughs> fascinating. Well, you're just you just take it so seriously. It's and, fun uh, stuff. Lots of lots of great video clips of animals beating the shit out of each other. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine that. Elephant seals and stuff. But you bring up this point about you know, the, the energetic expense yeah. of doing this. And and this was a really clever set of studies. And, and I didn't do them. I mean, this is from the literature, but these people, they took advantage of the agriculture industry. So, so if you have cattle and you're a cattle farmer, you know, everything is about weight gain. I mean, you manage your, you manage your herd, you manage the for the feeds that you're feeding them, the timing of things, everything is coming down to how quickly your animals can gain and what rate they can gain weight. You want to buy them low, fatten them up, sell them high. There's a huge industry trying to understand the way that things like livestock put on and gain muscle mass and weight. And so they'd actually broken this down in these really complicated models where they were looking at all nitrogen, phosphorus, all the different nutrients in, paying attention to the diets. They had input bone mass, the skeletal weights, the muscle mass, the metabolic physiology, the weight, the sizes, all these parameters on these animals. And they could predict really, really accurately how subtle changes to this or that piece of the diet would translate into the rate at which these animals were putting on muscle mass. And so because people cared a lot about that, they put a ton of time and effort into parameterizing these really complicated models. And they did a really good job describing growth and weight gain in vertebrates like that. So these biologists took the models and said, hey, let's look at moose. or <laughs> Let's look yeah. at something we care about. And they reset all the parameters based on the bone densities and the leg lengths and the, you know, all the height and the, all the weights of the, of the things like moose or caribou and turned around and said, all right, given the model now parameterized for a moose, how expensive are antlers? They could burn antlers and figure out how many calories they knew what was in it. They could basically figure out 
what it costs in terms of nutrients and, and energy to make an antler and then put that into the energy budget of the animal and say, how expensive is it? And that's when they were stunned. They're like, I mean, they basically found, I think it was two calves, the, the male bull, right, elk, I can't remember right. if it was moose, producing a full rack of antlers expended as much energy as it took a female to raise two calves all the way to weaning. Stunned every. I mean, nobody expected oh, it to be that man. expensive, but it's a clever approach, isn't it? It is. I mean, it's a neat way to do that. And then it's, these it's guys a great went one step too. further yeah. and they took the Irish elk, the extinct Irish elk, which had these huge antlers. Yeah, that's and really tried, bad. You know, that's they had to make some mofo, guesses because yeah. we don't have any living Irish elk, but they, they did a pretty good job setting the models for them to try to figure out just how expensive the antlers were. And they were pretty expensive. <laughs> you can see why they might have gone extinct. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I have a hard, a I have a hard there, time with that. Well, well yeah, sure, sure. I mean, think, oh, you could, one, one, could suggest, one could suggest, I'm not trying to say that that's why. Well, I'm let's just, add the caveat because I think about these kinds of things. And, and one of the things we may get to when we talk about arms races today is that they cycle. There's a very predictable sequence of stages and eventually arms races collapse. The whole thing ends. The antlers or the weapons are so expensive that they're not worth it anymore and they're gone. Normally in an animal, when that happens, we're not arguing that they go extinct. What it means is some males come along and don't bother producing the weapons and those males win. <laughs> They're not paying the price and the right. weapons really aren't doing what they used There's to do back anymore. Doors. And all of a sudden individuals that ditch the weapons are the winners and the population loses the weapons and very quickly evolves to a state where they no longer have the big weapons. That's the normal way. The Irish elk are the one exception where they really might have actually gone extinct because of the weapons. It's hard to say because we weren't there. But what they found with these models is that the antlers were so expensive that these bulls would have been sort of right on the metabolic edge. And they would have had barely enough time after the rut to recoup the energetic losses before the next cycle. And then what happened is not only were those antlers getting bigger and bigger, but they have evidence from the pollen and the, and the, the climate records that the climate changed, like pulling the carpet out from under these animals. All of a sudden they went through, I think it was called the Younger Dryas. Yeah, the yeah. climate changed rather abruptly. And they can tell from the pollen records that all the things that they used to feed on were gone. And they were forced to switch from herbs and things to grasses, things that were a lot less nutritious. And so it's the double, it was the double punch, really expensive antlers that are sort of pushing the limit of what's possible. And then all of a sudden your food's gone and you're forced to switch to something that's really crap quality. And that combo might've been too much. Left you ill prepared. So that's the reason some people argue that the Irish elk actually went extinct because of the weapons. But usually what happens is they get caught on an arms race, they get bigger and bigger and bigger, and then the whole thing collapses and they ditch the weapons and go off on another path. Uh, oh, I yeah. never came back to you. No, you never question. did, but but okay, don't do this one next. <laughs> do the thing you're supposed to do now, but there's a funny story you talk about with the beetles. Where's this beetle and there's like a female that goes down in a hole and hangs out in the hole? Yeah. There's this beetle, he grows this big badass horn oh, and you he want guards to talk about the guys. But yeah. he guards the hole. Yeah. But then there's some little snaky dude with no horn who just burrows down and comes in from under beneath a little sneak attack and yes. gets it on with the female and the, and the dude with the big horns is hanging out has no idea that it even happened. So these are, these are dung beetles that live in Panama. Well, a lot of the dung beetles have this problem, but the ones that I was looking at live down in Panama and the males have a nice big rack of horns on their head. So they're big tank. Well, they're little beetles, but I mean, the horns are big relative to the tank. Pair of horns on their head. And, and it's important because... Again, it depends on where we want to go with this. One of the catalysts, one of the things... Well, you're behind on one question. Behind, Keep that in mind. One of the things that we think, I think, precipitates an arms race in animals that sort of aligns the last star into place so that all of a sudden the population shoots off on this trajectory of bigger and bigger and bigger weapons 
is a situation where the fight dynamics change from being something that is sort of a chaotic scramble to something that is much more consistently one-on-one. Something about the biology, the habitat, the structure, something about the way these animals are confronting each other changes. And then all of a sudden, what had been really chaotic becomes very consistent and predictable and repeatable, one-on-one duels. And that's this thing that I learned actually from the military literature can spark an arms race and start the whole process. So in the dung beetles, most of the time we think of dung beetles who you know, for those of us that actually think about dung beetles, but if you've ever been to Africa, you picture these things, they, they've got the, they carve these balls, they push the balls around on the ground. Those beetles fight all the time, they scramble. None of them have weapons, never. They do not have horns on those kinds of beetles. And the fights are all sort of pandemonium and scrambles. Lots of animals all piling in. But there's subsets, some lineages of dung beetles where they started digging the tunnels, and you mentioned the hole. And that was the, that was the behavior change that, that that rewrote the rules because all of a sudden the females are down in a hole. They're in a tunnel. It's a tube. And so the males plant themselves at the entrance and they guard the tunnel. And all of a sudden it's not a scramble anymore because you can't get attacked by 10 rivals at once. It's a tube. Only one beetle can fit in the tunnel at a time. And so it's not like they consciously decided to fight duels because it's more honorable or anything like that. Suddenly they're in a tunnel and because they're in a tube, they only ever fight one rival at a time. Boom, just like that. That's the catalyst. As simple as that, all of a sudden, the males are fighting consistent, repeatable, pushing matches of strength. And in that kind of a fight, the bigger, stronger male wins, the male with the weapons wins. And boom, those lineages start evolving horns. It could be big curved things on the thorax. It could be horns coming off the head. I mean, there's, there's hundreds of configurations of these weapons. They've popped up again and again and again. Every single time these beetles switched from fighting in a scramble on the surface to fighting in a tube in a tunnel, just like that on an arms race, they started getting weapons and the weapons got bigger and bigger and bigger. So the ones I was studying, these males have big horns, they're guarding the tunnel, they're fighting these duels with rivals at the entrance. And that's when the little sneaky guys break the rules. The little males are never going to win. They're smaller body size. They're not as strong. They've got, they don't even have horns. I mean, little nubbins where the weapons would be. So they got no weapons. They're never going to win a fair fight but they, they don't fight fair. They break the rules. And so they act like a female. They dig their own tunnel. They mine down in there. And then they cut over and they intercept the guarded tunnel. So you're the big guy at the entrance fighting. The little sneaky buggers are, are basically mining their way in beneath you, getting into your tunnel, going down, finding the female, mating with the female and sneaking out again. And the big guys at the entrance are oblivious. That, that th- same thing exists with salmon. Uh, the Absolutely. Chinook salmon have a an alternate life history called precocious males, where they like when you're hide. Jack, exactly. But there's ones there's ones that um, uh, unlike Jacks don't even go to the ocean, so they'll they'll become sexually mature at like six months. Oh really? Yeah. So so there. Oh, so I know like, Jack didn't go to the ocean. Well, Jacks do. Jacks do go to the ocean. So oh, sorry. so Jack, Jacks the, there's there's multiple life histories and. And a lot of these these salmon species, so you know, you've got everything from the big forty pound males that spent four years in the ocean to the jacks that just spent one year, to the precocious males that never even go out, and so they'll be sexually mature at like three inches long, and they'll hide in the rocks with with like you know two fifty pound chinook, and then the the hen goes to lay her eggs, and they I've seen videos of this actually my my uh, my buddy John McMillan and he's in there jizzing on them yeah he he'll nice. go in and jizz on them bef- before the the big buck can and, and never even know it and he doesn't have to go to all the expense of going to the ocean and and all the the dangers that and that entails he can entails. be reproductive after six months exactly whereas the other one takes four years and we yeah, talk and, about an opportunity and I've also read about how that it, that's helpful um, from a conservation standpoint that that sometimes 
when a runs get so bad, so low as they often do in this day and age that sometimes like if there's only the one, like a couple females who make it back to a stream to spawn, they're, they're able to, you know, keep the keep the line going keep the population alive sl- like because, sleeper agents man. exactly yeah. <laughs> yeah you know in college you think about it too it's be like it's like the dude who um i can't wait to see no, this one no. <laughs> like the dude the girls are like oh he's funny right that's like your guy that like burrows in right exactly he's, play, he's like playing a totally different trip you know yeah the friend zone yeah oh he's fun i like it. Yeah. he's funny it's like that's it works. The, he's the little digger <laughs> Digging in. You can tell me anything. Everybody else is all fighting. <laughs> well, so um, in, in Beatles and things like this, we call it an alternative reproductive tactic or an alternative mating tactic. And, and lots of, I mean, bighorn sheep, they've got coursers that go, when a big male is fighting and distracted in a battle, a little guy's run in and chase the females off and corner him. What do you call those? Coursers. Aren't they called coursers in bighorn sheep? Well, Yanni's I've got a favorite thing. Are you going to bring up your shirkers, Yanni? Oh. Shirkers? Okay. <laughs> I thought about it, but then I decided not to. Do you want to go down that? Yanni will, now, Yanni will now hit you. But hold on, because he's backed up as it is. But I okay, know. he's backed I up know. by one question. Well, He's playing it safe. He's backed up by one question, All but right. zapping with, shir- zap with the shirkers. We just want to know Doug's opinion on it. <laughs> yeah, get his opinion on, on shirkers. Uh, you ever heard of Val Geist? Yeah. Yeah. Huh, what was that? He's not like our uncle or anything. No, I mean... I, it, that was a loaded, yeah. Well, he's a, <laughs> he's a loaded character. I mean, I never actually have met him, but I've read a ton of his work because yeah. he did a lot of the early conceptual work on the evolution of crazy structures like Conceptual, antlers. yeah. Yeah, that's the big problem is it was mostly ideas and not a lot of data. But, you know, every now and then people get it right. <laughs> and a surprising number of his ideas that he just threw out there and never actually backed up, a lot of those ideas are turning out to to be right. Yeah, we've had this conversation a lot of times where a lot of researchers such as yourself will, will talk about the, um, you know, his practice of being like, you know what might have happened, right? <laughs> you do and that just, enough times and one of them's going to be right, right? That's <laughs> like probability. Just keep throwing yeah. stuff at the wall. So, anyway, so he so had Yanni. the idea of shirkers, which were bucks <laughs> or bulls that would remove themselves from the breeding game or the rut and for four or five years, just hang out at the top of the hill where the grass is thick and green and lush. Wait in their and time. And load up and load up and load up until at the point where they were 30% bigger body-wise, 30% bigger antler-wise, and they could stroll in and they could breed everybody and pass their genes. In one season, they could own the, you know, the breeding rights. So I don't know whether those animals exist because I don't study ungulate populations, but it wouldn't surprise me. Really? I know. Really? So let me give you an extreme example. Rass. Yanni. A fish on a coral reef. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like it's bow. <laughs> so so there are fish that, that go even one step further. Ooh. So rass uh, super actually sh- change super sex. Shirkers. So, so they start out life as a female because yeah. most females yeah. are able to reproduce. The, 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 the variance in reproductive success, the difference between winners and losers for females is pretty small. And then it's the males where the competition is really stark and 90% of them get nothing and a very small percentage of them get all the reproduction. And so they'll start out as females and play it safe and breed literally as females while, you know, the breeding is good. And then, and only if they get big enough and strong enough or the alpha male gets killed and he's suddenly removed and there's a vacancy, 
then the sort of next biggest in line switches from female to male, takes on the male status and, and steps into that role. And Dude, so in a way, great. it's like your shirker, except that you're not just sitting there eating on the greener pasture. You're actually reproducing as a female that whole time. But you only flip and take on the really risky, you know, high reward, high whatever you want to say, that risky strategy, if and when you're big enough to and pull it tell off. tell me again, what species was that? W-R-A-S-S-E. It's grass. It's called the... It's a coral reef Kobudai. There's a Napoleon the Ras too, right? Yeah, there is. I think a bunch it, of them it looks do, a lot like it. a Napoleon Ras. And I was just I just saw this so on the on the new uh, <laughs> the new Blue Planet um, from from BBC, which is on Netflix. They have a really cool awesome. segment on that and and how, how it goes away and the body goes undergoes that incredible change and it grows that huge bump on its head and yeah cha- changes uh, its sex. Yeah, there's man. A- you know what that program needs is uh, two versions. One with David Attenborough and one without him. I cannot listen to that dude. Oh my god, I could listen to that dude all. Oh I my think he's god. awesome. Oh, really? The guys like it makes it that I can't. Like that. It it's makes like, it that I can't really? watch the high end nature documentaries. Wow. Really? I, oh, like I, I, feel, I feel like I feel like I feel like everybody drops. loves David yeah, Attenborough's like voice because that's like that. we tried, didn't we try dude. with didn't Morgan Freeman and uh, oh, I would so much prefer that. Yeah, oh, man. The way he, like, he dramatizes, I, I heard like, one. And then but... a bird will show up, a bird, you know, and then, like, the bird joins the thing. Just kills me, man. It's like, would you please just say the lines? <laughs> no, Sir David <laughs> writes the lines. The, the, anyway. Uh, all right, but, anyways. So, you're lo- so, okay, so, shirkers this, are real. Shirkers real. Another example, <laughs> bullfrogs. Or frog, a lot of frog populations, not bullfrogs, but, like, Tangara frogs and chorus frogs, they sing. And the call that they sing is an honest signal of the size of the male. I mean, again, their their larynx size tracks with their body size. Oh, yeah, size. man. And you so tell a big bullfrog. The big, the big bullfrogs are deeper. The females can tell. The females orient towards the big guys. But singing like that is dangerous. They're out there calling, 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 calling. They get hammered by bats that cue in on the same properties of the song and eat them all. No, and really? And so when you're out there singing, it's dangerous. You're risking death. And if you're a medium quality, mediocre, puny little male, why would you go risk death if you're not going to win anyway? Because there's a big guy over there and all the females are going to go over there. And so when you find these populations, you find, first of all, a lot of the smaller males shut up. They play it safe. So they are the ultimate shirkers. They sneak. They hang out quiet, acting like a female. They're not singing, singing, singing. They look and act like a female. They creep up to the territories of the big stud males, and they hang out on the edges, and they try to intercept females and mate with them as they come into the big male. Like satellite Ooh, below. Like that, and, yeah. then, and then when they get big enough, and only when they get big enough, they switch over and start calling. And you can show that. You can go in and take out the big guys. Just pull them out, remove them. All of a sudden, there's this pond, and the big studs are gone. The, the next vacuum. male, it's like the males in line can figure it out. It's like, holy shit, he's not there anymore. Boom. <laughs> they stop sneaking and they start calling and, and they step around. into. So, yeah. so shirking is real. Whether it happens in deer, I don't know, but it happens in frogs. It happens in a lot of things. How are you feeling, Yanni? Good. Because the last time, you, that last time you brought up shirkers, you got shot down bad. Yeah. Bad, no, bad, those, bad. those boys, the mule deer biologists didn't agree. He all but came over and hit Yanni when Yanni, <laughs> brought, <laughs> I wish I'd seen that. When Yanni brought up shirkers. But let's come back to the one that I'm behind on. Can I do that now? Yeah. Well, you tell me what you're behind on. So I, what I'm behind on, you mentioned that you know body size is oh, pretty yeah, much the same, it, but antlers differ a lot. Yeah, this is And we sort of flirted with this topic from different angles. It comes back to the signal. It's like, what is the thing that's sort of advertising the status or the size or the quality of a male. And in the frogs, we just talked about, you know, the big guys have a deeper call. They sound different. The females can tell. It's an honest signal. You can't fake it. The only way to have a low song is to be huge. 
And if you're a little wimpy guy, there's just nothing you can do. You're stuck. It is, it is an intrinsically honest signal because it's difficult. You can't fake it. You can't be a puny little male and just suddenly say, I'm going to sing the sexy song today. If you don't have the body to do it, you can't fake it. And signals like that are more stable evolutionarily. They're less susceptible to cheaters to collapse. Those signaling systems last a long time. And females that happen to pay attention to honest signals do better. They make better decisions than females that, that might be more fickle or pay attention to other things that don't matter. And over time, female preferences evolve and track in on the things that are the most expensive, the most difficult for males to do, the most honest signals that you really can't fake. And, and that's a part of biology that we know a lot about for big bird displays and song bird calls. All these things, they tend to be very expensive. They tend to be almost impossible to fake. They tend to be extravagant, charismatic, obvious things that a female can see really easily from a long way away. And they tend to be super variable. So if you took 10, I, I don't want Let's go back to the animal. You took a whole bunch of males and lined them up and you looked at things like body size. They differ a little bit. You know, the little guys might be about half as big as the big guys, but you look at the ornaments or the songs or whatever the signal is that they're focusing on and it's wildly variable. It'd be tenfold, 20-fold, 50-fold difference in size or quality between the puny guys and the big guys. And that's not an accident. That's sort of how these signaling systems evolve in these animals. And it makes them a really important sort of differentiator of winners and losers back to sexual selection. It's the males with the best calls or the, the sexiest signals or the most charismatic, colorful displays. Those are the ones that win. You can't fake it. The only way to do that is to be a rock star. And the females cue in on that and they pick the rock stars. So in yeah, talk about the percentage differences, like, like imagine that you have a year and a half old whitetail deer. Okay. Whatever. He's 120 pounds. He's got little spike antlers, but then that's exactly the parallel. The, the next year, about. the deer could be whatever pounds, and how, what magnitude larger? So, so you, you're asking antler questions. I work on beetles. I can only give no, you generality. No, 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 but but you got to tell me so, the way that I. You got to tell me so the way that beetles, I can appreciate. If I took a hundred yeah, of my beetles. rhinoceros beetles, do it with the damn beetles. Well, so beetles are a little simpler in the sense that I don't have the multi, the age cohorts confounding things. I got you. Because the biggest bat bucks and bulls are also the oldest. It's not an accident, and it's part of the same equation. At the end of the day, the males with the biggest antlers are also the oldest and the most dominant and in the best physiological condition. It's not a coincidence that your Boone and Crockett bull has the antlers that it has. That's not an accident. But age is part of that. With the beetles, it's simpler because they're all sort of the same age. They oh, yeah, come that's, that's a point I never thought of. That's a good point with insects. It's, they're all the same age. They're all adults. A they're little puny guy yeah. is never going to, once he comes out of metamorphosis, goes from a grub to a beetle, he's stuck. It's like a suit of armor. It's not going to change. A little guy has a little horn and he's going to have a little horn until the day he dies. So you huh. take age yeah. out of the yeah. equation, but it's the same process. No, it's so really, I, I, never, measure, that's, I never thought about how, how much that kind of simplifies things. By looking Just at in them. terms of explaining it, the biology yeah. is the same yeah, for I the antlers you. too. But say I took a hundred males, line them up. I showed you a box before we started today, a box with like a hundred beetles all lined up in a row. And if I took that sample and I measured body size and I compared the smallest guy all the way to the biggest, I'd find a nice sort of even gradient from little to big. And it'd be about a twofold, one and a half to twofold difference. The biggest beetle's probably twice as long or twice as wide as the littlest beetle. Okay. But if I look at the horns, I'm looking at about a 60-fold difference. I mean, a much no bigger, not 60%, how do I say that? Two times different, I'm getting confused on air here. It's more like a 
15 to 20 fold, sorry, difference between antler size. So two fold difference in body size and a 15 to 20 fold difference in the antler size or the horn size. So, so it comes back to what you mentioned a minute ago. The antlers are more variable. The horns in these beetles are more variable. You look at tusks, you look at any of these big weapon systems, fiddler crab claws, all these kinds of weapons are big, they're expensive, and they're wildly variable from male to male. And that's all part of the same thing. The reason they're variable is they're expensive. The little guys can't afford it. Only the best conditioned animals can afford to produce the really big weapons. Everybody else is stuck with a compromise. And so you end up having this huge sort of spectrum from the wimps with the little tiny things to the superstar best conditioned studs with the massive weapons. And it's not an accident. It's not random at all. It's, uh, the for, best- for the Beatles, is it's who, who's best at being a grub? It has a lot to do with that. It has to do with access to food. But it's more complicated than that because who gets the best food? In the field, you know, in the lab, I can manipulate it. I give them a lot of food and I get huge beetles with massive horns. I give them very little food. They all grow up stunted and tiny and none of them have any big weapons at all. So I can manipulate it. But in the wild, it's not an accident. Same with elk and deer. It's not a coincidence. The best dominant individuals have the best territories and they're the ones that are able to keep everybody else away. So their kids have the least amount of competition. They're the ones that are most resistant to pathogens and parasites, the healthiest, the least likely to get sick. So everything sort of lines up in their favor and those individuals have the most resources available to them. Other individuals are forced to more peripheral habitats. They're dealing with more crowded conditions. They're stressed out because they're losing the competition for access to resources all the time. The stress interacts with their immune system. So they're sick a lot more often. You know, they have access to less food, poor quality food, more competition, more disease, more parasites. All that stuff plays out and separates the winners from the losers. And none of it's an accident. I mean, it, it's, it's compounding and sort of self-reinforcing, but the best conditioned animals are the ones that tend to win. In the insects, it even gets into the parents' behavior. The females that are the best at picking the right spots to lay their eggs, their kids hatch and they just eat what's there. But, you know, there's some individuals that are in really good places and other individuals that are in lousy places. And so right from the day they're born, it's, it isn't a fair world. There's winners and losers, but it's not random. It has a lot to do with the behavior of the parents. We had a guy on who deals with nutrition and ungulates. Yeah, I would love to have heard that. And I he guess talks, I can find it. Can you can I? find it. And he talks about this idea that uh, the people talk about an area having good genetics for bucks, right? And so there's some area grows big bucks because of genetics. And he refutes that and talks about nutrition being the driver and not that animal's nutrition. But in some ways, a deer's eventual rack it's going to depend on both it's it's mother's in utero nutrition i buy it totally we see this with people that you we can see take these all kinds of animals you, you can yep. take these animals from places with quote shitty genetics and put them in a situation well, on, a certain, on a places certain places with shitty genetics technically our, that would mean habitats that are marginal with poor quality individuals well i know but in them. our lingo and like hunter lingo because genetics has to do with the animals, not I know, but the I'm landscape. T- yes, but I'm talking about what hunters talk about. Okay. Hunters would be like, why, you know, like, why are all these big bucks coming out of Iowa, right? And be like, oh, you know, the Iowa, they got the genetics. So it's, 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 just, it's the population that they're, the it's population population they're referring high quality. to. But I'm, not, yeah. I'm talking about how people use it. Yeah, yeah, people yeah, yeah. use it like that. They're like, oh, it's got the feed and got the genetics, Right. And they take animals from these places that supposedly, like out of the mule deer from the Black Hills, supposedly have bad genetics. So there's nothing you can do that's going to be small. But you take mule deer, 
from the Black Hills and move them to a place where no, you're not changing the genetics. You take males and females, yep. move them to a place with different nutrition, and all of a sudden they're giants. So in general, weapons and ornaments and all those other traits, but weapons, this kind, the sexually selected weapons, tend to be exquisitely sensitive to nutrition. More sense. So we did experiments in the beetles. We'll, we'll manipulate nutrition. Same kind of thing I just talked about. If I give them a little food or a lot of food, body size, about a twofold difference, wing size, about a twofold difference, eye size, about a twofold difference, horn size, about a 15-fold difference. And so That's same animals, same experiment, same difference in nutrition, and legs and eyes and wings, and all those things are sensitive to nutrition. They're all responding, but the weapons are responding more. So weapons are exquisitely sensitive to nutrition. It doesn't mean it's not genetic because it's not an accident in the wild. It's the best quality animals that usually end up succeeding in defending the best quality nutrition and the best resources. So you get this interaction between the quality of the genetics, the genotypes of those animals and the environments that those animals are in. But all of that comes together and is expressed in these traits, these weapons. And, and you very, if you vary nutrition, I guarantee you, you're going to have an enormous effect on antler size. So, so let me follow the logic here. Okay. I want to step back because I know we've been going off on all these directions. What I've been trying to talk about is the kinds of ecological situations that can spark an arms race, that can take a population that doesn't have big weapons, that's going about its business, something changes, and all of a sudden, from that point forward, it's the, you know, it's the bigger, stronger males with the weapons that win. They're able to monopolize access to some kind of resource, something that gives them an edge in the way that they come into contact with females. Something changed, and all of a sudden, bigger's better, and the males with the biggest weapons win. I talked in the dung beetle example about how suddenly starting to fight over tunnels, a simple change in behavior aligns the fights so that they're not scrambles anymore, now they're duels. That change in behavior, all of a sudden, bigger's better because in a duel, the stronger male wins. And if a male has a longer horn and he can pry better and get rid of the opponent better with the weapon, then the male with the longer weapon wins. And so all of a sudden, that population gets tipped into this trajectory that we're talking about as an arms race. And from that point forward, bigger is better. And so very quickly, the population across generations is going to ratchet up to bigger and bigger weapons. So that kind of a phenomenon happens with elephant tusks. It happens with caribou. It happens with fiddler crabs. It happens with all these animals with these crazy weapons. The, the particular trigger might be different, but they all fight in duels, one-on-one -on -one contests. And once they start on this path, the arms race plays out the same way every single time. And that's a point I kind of want to take a second to make. Once that button gets pushed, go, that beetle's on the trajectory. It's in an arms race. The weapons get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And a very, a very set set of things happens. As they get big, they get expensive. We talked about cost. So they get more and more expensive. What that means is fewer and fewer males are up to the muster. Most of the males now can't pay that price because it's getting more and more and more expensive. Very quickly, 80, 90% of the males are out of the game. They just don't have the resources to produce the really big weapons. And so they're pretty much gone. Collateral, they lose. The, the population becomes more and more concentrated around a smaller and smaller subset of victorious males. And the benefits of these big weapons get stronger and bigger and bigger. And the whole process ratchets up. But you reach a point, a tipping point, where the the winners and losers are so starkly different from each other. And so many males are getting nothing, 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 nothing that some of them somewhere stumble on a way to break the rules. They cheat. 
Oh, I forgot one more step. So the weapons get big, they get expensive. The fact that only a few males can do it, that's what gives us that variability we were talking about. That's the point where antlers are more variable than legs or ears or body size or fiddler crab claws are more variable than body size. All of a sudden now, those weapons are so expensive that only a few Boone and Crockett quality individuals can do it. The rest of them are stuck with suboptimal versions. The variation in the traits is pronounced. That Tip, that means that you suddenly got a signal. You've got a thing out there that is an honest indicator of fighting ability. It's not an accident that the biggest males have the biggest, they, they're the studs. So if I'm a mediocre male with a medium rack and I look and I size up my opponent and he's got a massive rack, do I want to escalate in that fight? No, because really he's going to beat me because <laughs> it's an honest signal and that male with bigger antlers is really the better fighter. And so in these animal populations, whether it's beetles, crabs, Ant, I mean, caribou, elephants, all these systems, once the arms race is at that point and these weapons are big, they're expensive, they're variable, they're an honest signal of fighting ability, the next step kicks in and the weapons start acting as a deterrent. They're a signal. You don't actually have to fight with it because all I need to do is look at that antler and I know I'm going to lose. And so more and more in these populations, the small guys back down. They, they size each other up, they spar a little bit, they look at each other. You see these great examples of antelopes sort of strutting side by side or fallow deer. There's beautiful pictures of these males. They run side by side and they turn around and they run back. They're like looking at each other, whose antlers are bigger. And then the smaller ones usually leave. And so you reach this point in the cycle where the weapons are big, they're expensive, they're a signal, and all of a sudden they're a deterrent. You don't even have to fight anymore because most of your competition walks away because you're the stud and you've got the weapons and it's honest. And that's the point where you start, that's where there's tons of military parallels, by the way, if we go there. And then at no, the I'm end, looking to get there next. you reach this point where the weapons are huge. Only a tiny fraction of individuals can afford it. Nobody else is even in the game. They can't even, they, not only can they not fight, I mean, they don't even bother trying to fight. And that's the point where usually somebody breaks the rules. The asymmetric warfare, the guerrilla equivalent, somebody cheats and figures out a way to screw that, man. I'm not playing by those rules anymore. The sneaky dumb yeah, beetles. But, yeah, like, it's like, like, I'm not going to fight at the entrance. I'm not going to win. So they dig a side tunnel and find another way. And that's the beginning of the end. Once the sneakers or the cheaters start doing too well, the whole thing collapses, the weapons disappear, and the whole process starts again. That so, cycle, something aligns like a star so that all of a sudden bigger's better. Population starts launching onto this trajectory, bigger, 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 bigger. They get bigger, they get expensive, they become exaggerated as a signal, they become a deterrent, cheaters invade, collapse. That sort of process repeats itself over and over again. And I would argue that just about any animal you can imagine, with the exception of the saber-toothed cats, that has huge weapons like that, has gone through exactly that cycle. And that's the parallel with the military. Military technologies go through the same cycle. They get triggered for the same reasons. Once they get triggered, the weapons get bigger and bigger and bigger. As they get bigger, they get more and more and more expensive. As they get more and more expensive, fewer countries or nations can afford to play the game. And then you reach a point where they're a deterrent because you got the weapons and nobody else does. And then the cheaters invade and the whole thing collapses. Yeah, and along comes some guys with airplane tickets and box cutters and brings you to your knees. Exactly. Or cyber hackers. Applying for tags each year in the West can be daunting. Yeah, I apply for everything everywhere. It's daunting. You have to go to a variety of sources to formulate your best guess as to where to apply. Well, this is a thing of the past now. Onyx just launched hunt research tools 
to simplify the process for all hunters. This tool helps organize the data that matters, makes comparing hunt options easy, and helps hunters develop a plan based on real metrics rather than gut feelings. OnX Hunt also offers all elite members a free digital membership to Hunt and Fool, who I use, for boots on the ground, insight and knowledge, and a membership to Hunt Reminder so you never miss another deadline. Stop stressing over application season and apply with confidence in 2024. Check out OnX Hunt Research Tools, free for all OnX Hunt Elite members. Not an elite member? Well, let's fix that. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt. This is an app I use literally every day. I use it for every aspect of hunting, scouting, trapping, you name it. Hey, I'm excited to share our newest sponsor here on the Meat Eater Podcast, which is Poncho Outdoors. The reason I'm excited is I buy their shirts anyways. I don't, I don't I, listen, man, I, I rarely go into stores to buy clothes. I like to, I just buy myself online and I love their shirts. Max that I work with, Max Bard, who comes on the podcast one day, I don't know if he sent me a link to this place. I went on and bought some shirts. Dude, they make some good shirts. And they even have an option where if you're like a skinny dude, you can click like the skinny dude thing and get like a whole different cut of the shirt. It's great. Based in Austin, Texas, Poncho is committed to crafting the world's best outdoor shirts for men. They got it started out with a lightweight fishing shirt. Now they make all kinds of other lines. Western, denim, flannel, corduroy. Better fitting. Not not all baggy. Better performing because they got modern fabrics with some stretch and breathability. And way comfortable. Poncho is only sold on their own website. So head over to ponchooutdoors.com. Use code MEATEATER for a free hat or t-shirt with any purchase of a shirt. Poncho offers free shipping and returns, so you can try them out risk-free. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank... Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. I, for one, use it on all of my outboard engines up in Alaska every year. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. All throughout your book, you, you talk you talk about military yeah. parallels. Sorry, sorry. Let, oh, thanks no, for no. letting me go off on that, but I wanted no, to great. try to well, tie no, the we're pieces stay together we're stay while there we had for a, a chance. So. Throughout your book, you talk about military parallels. So you get into armaments, um, the arms race, but there's one, there's one that doesn't go toward bigger, bigger, bigger. And you talk about... Uh, Projectile points. Yeah. Can you tell everyone about? So I can't even remember where it's. 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 Lo- I can. I'm losing myself now. Like I can't remember what example you brought up that got you to write about Clovis points and Folsom points. I am a sucker for history. I love the past. I love the past when I find a fossil and I realize I'm looking at something that's a snapshot from something way in the past. 
we just got back from taking our kids two weeks in Europe. I mean, I was blown away by Pompeii. The whole idea of walking around and looking yeah. at the mosaics in a bathroom of somebody's house from a thousand years ago. Just, I mean, I get a rush. It's a palpable endorphin rush. I love that feeling. And for me growing up, I used to find arrowheads in my neighbor's tobacco field in Tennessee. And after the rains, I would go walk through these fields and just look at the, the slopes of the dirt at the bases of the plants, look for the little glisten of pieces of flint or obsidian that were coming out of the dirt. And there's this feeling, I don't know how, some people get it, some people don't, I don't know how to describe it, but if I pick up an arrowhead and hold it, and I'm the first person to touch that since the person that made it. And those things can be three, four, five, ten thousand years old, depending on where you are and what they are. If it's Clovis, it could be 15,000 years old. That's this priceless moment of touching the past. And I, I used to get a kick out of that from as, I mean, basically from when I could walk onward. I love that history. And so for me, when I had a chance to look at all these weapons, to go back and look at arrowheads and really think about what, you know, what kinds of processes, agents of selection sort of shaped the evolution of the form of these arrowheads. It was, it was a fun, fun digression, but you brought it up in the context of them evolving to be smaller that rather than larger. And I think it's a really good parallel. I've tried to say it already in this interview. Most of the time, animal weapons aren't big. Most animals don't have an enormous rack sticking on the top or a coffee table fused to the top of their head. Most species, it's not worth it. It's too expensive. It's too awkward. Why the hell would you do something like that? And so most of the time, it's not worth it. We've talked today about the rare circumstances where the stars line up and all of a sudden in one population of one species, it is worth it. And you go off on this trajectory. But the arrowheads are a really nice, clear illustration of a, of a more typical situation where it's not worth it to get really big. And it illustrates the point that weapons are shaped by costs and benefits. And so with a, with a projectile point, how do I, where do I start? So, so what I did is I picked up a literature that had looked at the so-called evolution of projectile points in North America from you know, the earliest people that we think came across the Bering Strait. These were the Clovis people and the Folsom peoples all the way through to you know, effectively the, the colonization from Western Europeans and sort of the end of that era. And they have beautiful sequences of these projectile points through time even from within the same areas, you can look sort of over time at how the technology changed, the flaking patterns, the shapes, the sizes. And what they found is that the points got smaller. So if you go way back to the Clovis time period, they were using these primarily to hunt things like Columbian mammoths. And so we found that we, they found the points almost always in association with mammoth kills. They were pretty confident that that was a major source of calories for these people. And if you're gonna try to puncture through the hide of something that thick and that big, you need a big point. And there's some pretty tight physical constraints. I brought one that we can hold and look at. Pretty tight physical constraints on a, a napped stone projectile point that they have, you have to have a point that's tailored to the size of the shaft of the spear. It has to be about one and a half times the diameter of the shaft of the spear. If the point's too narrow, then when it pierces the hide, it doesn't create a slit that's big enough to allow the shaft of the spear to go in. So it hits, it goes in like an inch and it stops. So a longer, wider blade cuts a bigger gash slice and it creates an opening that lets the shaft of the spear go into the animal. But if you make them too wide, it's brittle and they snap. So you have this sort of, you know, this sort of tension between points that are too, too small for your shaft of your spear and points that are too wide and they break, and the happy medium is about one and a half times. So we know with the early Clovis, this isn't Clovis, but the, they were big, 
big points with really thick shafted spears that they needed to puncture through the hide of the mammoth. But those were very expensive points to make. It was hard to find pieces of obsidian without imperfections in it that would allow you to nap a point that was like, you know, some of them were like six, 10 inches long. And it took a spectacular amount of skill to be able to pull that off without breaking these things. And then you had to carry the spears and the points with you everywhere you went. These were nomadic people. They're carrying everything with them everywhere they go. By some estimates, they'd move 200 miles in a year. You're carrying everything with you. So big spears are heavy. As long as you're getting things like mammoths, it's worth it. The benefits of the big weapons are you can take down the huge prey, feed your people. It's a great thing. But the mammoths went extinct. And they had to shift from mammoths to smaller species. The next one was the bison antiquus, which I think you've talked about in some of yours, a big bison, but smaller than a mammoth. And so the shafts were overkill. Suddenly it wasn't worth it to carry these huge, heavy spears and, and to make these really, really hard to make points. So they started making smaller points that were better fit to the shaft sizes that they needed on the spears for the bison. And then when the bison antiquus went extinct, they shifted down again to bighorn sheep and to the modern American bison. And each time they shifted to smaller prey, they immediately got rid of the big stuff because it was too expensive to make, too expensive to carry. And they scaled down and got smaller and smaller until they had shaft sizes and point sizes that worked for the current prey. And then all that ended when they invented the bow and arrow because suddenly you had a fundamentally different sort of projectile propulsion system and you could get by with really tiny points. And from that point forward, nobody wanted to carry the big stuff. It was too expensive, too heavy. They, they all switched to really lightweight, portable bow and arrow technologies. So is that, is that what you want? Did exactly. I go off too far? In a no, no, not at all. That was exactly. And then, but it's a nice illustration of costs and benefits that the big weapons were worth the price when the prey was really big and you could use them on bison. But when that prey was gone, it wasn't worth the price to make a big weapon. So you downsized it to something that was cheaper. And then you downsize it again to something that was even cheaper. There's this sort of tension, tug of war between costs and benefits. And once the big prey were gone, the benefits weren't as big. So it's, it ratcheted down to a smaller size. Explain your view on, or not your view, but your insights, however you want to put it, into where we've looked like in recent decades with our military and how we imagined military might and how we would exercise military might and where currently who is the... Who, the sneak strategy. Yeah, who's the beetle that tunnels, who tunnels in and comes up through the floor? <laughs> <laughs> that one I can answer. So, so step back a second. Are we okay on time? No, oh, yeah. want to go out. Okay. Yeah. So, step back a second. One, I want to make one thing clear. We've been talking about evolution of animal populations and winners and losers and sexual selection. In something like caribou or elk, it's all about reproduction because the the males that win which presumably are the studs with the best antlers, the best condition. They win the harems. They get the access to the most females. They win because they sire more offspring and they produce more of the kids in the next generation. And those kids carry the antlers because the way that the antlers are copied is through producing more elk. The winners have more kids and the currency of success is numbers of offspring. When you talk about military weapons, it's different. We're not talking about who has kids, whether you have a better machine gun and more kids. We're, we're not talking about reproduction anymore. We're talking well, about but, a manufactured technology. Yeah, but historically, there's a lot of instances where it does control reproduction. There are. The Middle Ages is a good one. Yeah. When you, and like, weapons are used when to kill people, so they definitely affect reproduction. But oftentimes, but, people find where like it seems like the male, where there'll be a population, and it'll seem like there's a sudden, very radical shift in the population in the area 
from and you can see markers from a conquering invasion. Yep. Where it seems like yeah, the men so that were there want to go there. Yes, no, there are reproductive the, the men that were there seem to vanish with conquest. <laughs> yeah. And there's no question that military leaders and political leaders tend, especially if you're including illegitimate offspring, to sire an awful lot of offspring. So reproduction. So reproduction uh, I, I, is I'm relevant not, to not, humans. I'm not trying to say what you're saying is not right. I'm saying there's cases, it is still like, the ultimate like, currency for success in humans yeah. too. That'll piss everybody off. But at the end of the day, you know, when you look a thousand generations from now, the people that are going to be out there are going to be offspring from people that were here today. So, so yes, reproduction still matters. But what I'm trying to say is if I want to understand this arrowhead mm -hmm. or I want to look at airplane technology or a tank technology or missile technology, it really doesn't matter how many kids the person that designed it has or how many kids the person that flew it has. That's a separate question. So yes, military issues are associated with dying and with breeding. But we're not, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the missile or the tank or the arrowhead. And when you're talking about a weapon or take a machine gun, you know, an AK-47, that is a thing. There, there are copies made in a factory. They're cranking out AK-47s. The factory is making more ak 4 That's not me having kids. That's the factory making more AK-47s. But yeah. if I look at the population of submachine guns out there or assault rifles out there, I could go out there just like I could say how many dark mice and white mice are out there in my population. I could say how many M16s, how many AK-47s. If I want to characterize the population of assault rifles on this planet right now, I could probably find 50, 100 different models out there. A few of them are going to be really rare. Some of them, like the AK-47, are going to be ridiculously common. I could talk about variation in the weapon out there now. And realistically, that's going to change. Some models are going to get picked up and spread, and they're going to become more common, and they're going to get adjusted and developed and get better and better over time. Others are going to disappear. They're too clunky. They jam under, you know, the sand gets in them. They don't work. Nobody wants them. They're too expensive. Nobody wants to produce them for their militaries. So the weapons are going to change over time. And it's a turnover process, winners and losers. It's exactly the same as what we're talking about with antlers or beetles, but it's not tied to reproduction. It's tied to who wants this, you know, which models are be being picked up, manufactured and spreading and which models are being discontinued because they suck or they're not cost effective or nobody wants them. And so you still have winners and losers. You can talk about the technology. It will change over time. If you look at the assault rifle over the last 50 years, it's changed. It's better now. It's more efficient now. People have been playing around with it, trying to change the design. Sometimes it's by accident. Sometimes they're engineers trying to make it more efficient, make the cartridges work better, make it more cost effective, make it more portable. People are tweaking it and playing around. It's still an AK-47, but they're playing with it to try to make it better. That's variation. That's just like mutations cropping up in a mouse population, making them a little faster, a little thicker, a little lighter. You know, there's variation and some of it sucks. It doesn't work at all. It's gone. Some of it works really well. People grab it and run with it. That's evolution. So with that as a backdrop for weapons, now we can come back full circle and say, well, when would weapons, particular technologies get caught up in an arms race where all of a sudden you need bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And historically, there's really good sort of accounts of early weapons technologies and where this happened. So if you go back to the Romans and the Greeks and, and the Syrian time periods, Mediterranean, there were galleys that were these oared, you know, the triremes. There were these ships that were rowing soldiers back and forth. For many, many years, like a thousand years, these ships were called pentaconters. They had 50 rowers. And 
There was nothing special about them. They just carried troops from place to place. They scrambled about on the ocean. They weren't actually weapons. They were just boats that took people along the shorelines to transport troops. For a thousand years, nothing changed. All the countries had the same basic ship. The design was pre pretty much indistinguishable. And then somebody invents a battering ram. Boom, just like that. New technology, it's, this, it's like a beetle horn. It's a thing that sticks off the front of the boat. But oh my God, from that point forward, all the rules were rewritten. Because now you could take your ship, smash it into somebody else and sink his ship. And so overnight, they went from shuttling people like a scramble to hitting another opponent's ship one-on-one -on -one in a duel. That's, that's the same trigger that works in animals. That's the spark. All of a sudden, whoever's got the fastest ship wins. Now you've got an arms race because a bigger ship, a faster ship wins in that kind of one-on-one -on -one encounter. And just like that, after nothing happening for a thousand years, overnight, these technologies exploded as people started making bigger and bigger and bigger ships. They started getting longer until they buckled. They started adding another row of rowers. So bireams came along, then triremes, then five, sixes. They, they got bigger and bigger and bigger until these ships were, were monstrosities that were effectively useless. But the point is, a change in technology caused the weapons, the ships, to line up one-on-one -on -one in a duel, exactly like the dung beetles in a tunnel. Suddenly yeah. they're facing each other one-on-one, -on -one and that was it. You can look at various periods throughout military history, and the same kind of a process has happened. The Cold War was the most prescient and sort of alarming of those. And in that case, it happened at the level of nation states and political landscapes, but you effectively had the U.S. and the U.S.S.R., the superpowers that were still standing after the Second World War, going toe-to-toe -to -toe in the sand. That's a one-on-one -on -one duel. And that sparked an arms race that led to unbelievably rapid development of missiles, aircraft, tanks, nuclear weapons, everything. I mean, all the weapons technologies that we had sort of got folded into that race. And, and if you want to go into that, it turns out the behavior of the nations during that time period was exactly like elk or fiddler crabs or beetles. Those two nations didn't go nuclear in an all-out, full-on battle. They sparred. They had little conflagrations in Afghanistan and Korea and Vietnam where they sort of pushed each other a little bit. They used conventional weapons. They didn't use the nuclear or the weapons of mass destruction. They sized each other up and then backed down again. That's exactly what animals do in that kind of situation. You know what's interesting so, about when we think about the parallels and then the, the, the things that don't line up, would be like with at, in World War II that the U.S. becoming the people who developed, that were first to develop the atomic bomb would be as though, I mean, we started that war not a superpower. You're right. But Absolutely. by the time we came out, we were emerging as, it would be like if a giant, it wouldn't be that the hornless beetle <laughs> suddenly came up, <laughs> dug a hole up from underneath. It'd be like the horned beetle, the one with the big bad horn was like, oh, and guess what else? I also have fangs. You know, it's yeah. a little bit like we we upset our we upped our we trumped our own action by developing the atomic weapon. Yeah, and then thereby made and there in some in some degrees made this mat the Japan this naval superpower. It made that naval might irrelevant because yeah. we had the atomic bomb. It, it rewrote the rules, completely changed the game. But that's again the arms races ratchet up. They escalate. So the simplest way to think of it is beetles again. And, you know, it got, or antelope picture, you've got seven inch horns out there and suddenly somebody comes along with eight inch horns and they start winning. Pretty soon, all their kids, grandkids, great grandkids, pretty soon everybody's got eight inch horns and that's not enough. And now somebody pops up with a nine inch horn. And, and so in a sense, the sizes of these weapons ratchet in steps. 
But you can also have sort of fundamentally new technologies that pop up on the scene that just completely rewrite the rules. And so arms races can go in lots of directions and usually they're additive. So you still need the first weapon, but now you need the second one too. Yeah. And now you need the third, you need tanks and submarines and bombers and nuclear weapons. You know, it got more and more expensive because all these things were sort of compounded. But the, the nuclear weapon game, that was that was like a spontaneous mutation that completely rewrote the rules. Because yeah, especially the ones like inter, intercontinental. Because like the, the time, atomic bomb, those, you had to like deliver it with a ship. It was like yep. the Indianapolis. You had to like deliver it to the yep. Pacific Theater in a ship. You had to have a powerful air force yep. to, to get the thing afield and put it where you want it. And so, you're, like you said, it's like a ratcheting up because you're relying on all these capabilities. You, yep. Someone does just walk that thing over And you're locked in a race yeah. because, really, you're assessing your capabilities against your opponent, and they're constantly trying to do better at their capabilities. So every time they get a new technology, then they're up, then they're ahead of you. The race is on to surpass them. It really ratchets into this vicious cycle that can lead out of control. So... So where oh, we were at tell the, us, the like, sneak where weapons. We're, where we're so where now. we are today, that the Cold War obviously yeah, the, has who the digging, down. Who the digging beetle but is But the technologies right are still out there. And one interesting sort of twist on that system is during the Cold War, the most expensive state-of-the-art weapons, the ones that were the equivalent of the antlers in your elk or your caribou or the horns in my beetles, were the nuclear weapons. Though That was the new technology. That was the one that was the most sophisticated, the most difficult to, to, to actually generate. And then you had to have, all, like you said, the delivery. You had to have the infrastructure to be able to deliver that, which took all the sensor nets. It took all the guidance systems. It took the, the whole space race was basically a cloak and you know a, a facade for developing missile technology that could deliver nuclear weapons to an opponent. And so all of that stuff had to be there. Today... We're in a very different world. Now we've got stockpiles of these nuclear weapons caged away in places that I hate to think about <laughs> that are sort of rotting away. And they're, they're a dime a dozen because we produced a shitload of them during the Cold War. So there's tons of nuclear warheads out there. That's not, that's not that expensive. In fact, it's not that inconceivable that just about anybody could get their hands on them. Well, I think what, seven this or eight, I can't remember how many, seven or eight countries now, maybe more? A couple more on the horizon? There are a couple more on the horizon. <laughs> the, the, um, the really expensive weapons, the ones that are the equivalent of antlers now are conventional weapons. They're things like the F-35 strike fighter and the new Gerald Ford class aircraft carrier. These things cost billions and billions of dollars to produce. And only a very small number of nations have the technology, the sophistication, the infrastructure, the trained personnel, the, and all the stuff you need to produce and maintain and use these weapons. So, I mean, I had a chance to visit one of our nuclear aircraft carriers a couple months ago. Astounding experience looking at our operations in action in the Pacific as we cycled through. They had the F-35 strike fighters landing on a carrier for one of the first times ever on a carrier. I got to stand like as close as I am to you and watch these things come screaming down and catch the tail hook. These technologies are incredible. A helmet on an F-35 costs half a million dollars. Every single bomb that they put on these things is a million dollars out of the gates. I mean, we're spending billions of dollars. The nuclear triad, the infrastructure that we have is, is trillions of dollars a year. And, and so these are the state-of-the-art weapons now. And you asked about the sneaky beetles. What's the, the cheater that we have to worry about? It's cyber hackers. I mean, it seems crazy, but we're spending billions of dollars on some astoundingly good tech. I mean, I got to, these fighters are amazing. Absolutely amazing. I don't know if any of you have had a chance to see them. If you know much about the F-35, it is a supersonic, super maneuverable stealth fighter that 
the helmets, the reason the helmets cost half a million dollars on these things is they're completely integrated with sensor systems so that the movements of the pilots are tracked within the, within the cockpit of the plane. So any direction the pilot looks, the direction they're looking is automatically integrated with sensors that are built into the skin of the aircraft in that direction. They're tracking the pupils of the pilot. And so they've got infrared sensors, they've got all the GPS stuff, they've got this, the, the topographic maps, everything all overlaid. It's not even like there's a screen. The old ones had a heads-up display screen. It's just there. They can look straight through their legs, their crotch, down the bottom of the plane. There's, it's gone. It's nothing. They see all the way to the ground because it completely integrates. They have unobstructed 360-degree view all the time. Heat sensor, everything. All sort of overlaid into an integrative picture. It's amazing. But... All of these technologies depend on software. So we're spending a fortune on these incredible technologies. And they, you know, we're the Boone and Crockett bull right now. Those are the state-of-the-art weapons. And we really are safer because of them. They're amazing. But the sneaky little beetles sort of worming away from the sidelines are the hackers. Because if they can get past, we can't, a pilot can't fly these things without software. You can't land these planes without software. They, they literally can't handle the planes without the software because the planes can do maneuvers that are fast enough that the pilot would black out from the G-forces. So they have to integrate whatever the pilot does with the stick with sort of built-in sensor systems that, that, that interpret the pilot's movement in a way that doesn't cause the plane to do something that, that blacks out the pilot. So you literally can't even go old-fashioned and fly these things without the software. The, the, the aircraft carrier was awesome. I got to talk to the captain. I got to talk to the first officer. I got to talk to the master chief, the cooks. I got to talk to the people running the nuclear reactors. I mean, I got to meet anybody and everybody. They were awesome about letting us as a civilian go in and just look at what was happening. But every single step of that operation is critically dependent on software. They can't control the nuclear reactor on the ship without software. They can't navigate without software. They can't control the positions of the planes without software. They can't orchestrate the landings and the takeoffs of the planes without software. The way that they communicate with all the rest of NORAD and everything is all software. So, so our vulnerability, the flanks that we've got exposed right now, is the firewalls on our software. And they know it. I mean, I'm not teaching, telling them anything. Yes, I did get a chance to go to Washington, D.C. and give a talk in front of the former director of the NSA and the CIA and all these top brass from the military about sneaky dung beetles and sneaky bighorn sheep and salmon, actually, telling them the parallels. But, you know, I'm not teaching them anything they don't know. They, they, they're totally aware of this. And, and that's the new arms race. So when I was at this conference talking to these guys, they said, yeah, yeah, we've, the, the Chinese have buildings full of people that are trying 24 seven to hack into our systems. And we've got buildings full of people that are hacking into theirs. And the idea is each side is trying to insert code. It's not just stealing trade secrets so they could go build their own F-35. That would cost them a fortune. Why go build your own jet if you can insert code that renders ours useless? So, so the idea, they, they're called zero day attacks, is if they can insert code that sits then we can't find it because it's not doing anything. It's just sitting there. So it's harder for us to tell that it's there until, you know, zero day. When they need it, they turn it on and they can take over our technologies and use it against us. That's the fear. We spend all the money. We produce the technologies. They hijack those technologies and use them against us. That is the ultimate game changer sneak strategy that we got to worry about. But the military is on it. And their argument is they have so much infiltrating all their technologies that we can damn sure shut them down too. So, so the general actually said, this is the new arms race. It's like, we're all sort of racing each other to who can hijack and control the software of the other side. That's the new reality. That's our new Cold War.
Crazy stuff, huh? It's a long way from dung beetles and rhinoceros beetles, I'll tell you that. No, it's great, though, man. You do a great job of bringing it all together. Thanks. It's I fun. like the parts about deer. I do, too. <laughs> no, it's phenomenal. Is it possible to tell where you are in within an arms race in a particular species? Oh, I thought you mean us. It's like, it's a little scary when you try to do that. <laughs> no, yeah, that's I really a good don't question. want to be the guy all that says our aircraft carriers no, are obsolete. I don't think we're there yet. I've had all kinds of human comparison questions coming through my head, and I've passed well, on all of them. Yeah, in 100,000 years, will elk have bigger antlers? <laughs> or will they have, like... Uh, very possibly, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that arms race is still... Well, it's hard to say. So, first of all, with animal populations, you know, we talked, Sam brought up the fact that evolution can happen really fast. And when you're dealing with antibiotics applied to a population of bacteria, you're talking hours. You know, I mean, that population is going to adapt within 24 hours. It's fast. Yeah, because they're hatching new you're generations at influenza. Yeah. People want to know why they get a, get a flu shot every single year. It's because the flu virus is evolving so fast that six months, eight months out, it's such a genetically different beast that the vaccinations we just produced don't match it anymore. And so those are situations where it's happening really fast. I mean, hours to days to weeks, you got to stay on top of it. Elk. Rhinoceros beetles, probably a little bit slower. <laughs> Still fast in the grand scheme of things because these kinds of arms races are quicker than normal background evolution. But, but we're talking decades to hundreds of years. No, but I can flip that back, getting smaller. We've got really good evidence. This will be a hot button topic for your audience. But I know some of the scientists, we have very compelling evidence that things like bighorn sheep populations have been selected on by trophy hunting and have actually evolved in response to have smaller and smaller horns. So we've actually driven the evolution of smaller weapons in contemporary populations of an ungulate, bighorn sheep. And they've got data where they stopped the trophy hunting and they, the horns rebounded and evolved to be really, really big again. So we can see weapon evolution, even on the scale of things like deer or bighorn sheep happening over, you know, two decades, three decades. It's not hours like flu and it's not millennia. It's, it's still pretty fast. With that, you know, like a, a doll sheep, for instance, in most of Alaska, a doll sheep becomes legal when he develops the 360 degree horn. If I was a doll sheep, you'd be better off. I would really that rather as long not as have. Possible. Yeah, if yeah. that didn't, you could, you're still vulnerable because of other things. But that's like the key indicator. So we, and, and one that gets there fast, one that gets a full curl fast, is you know I don't know how, how long. Yeah, so and I don't know how long again, it, it takes come to actually. To, and if if there's tens of thousands of doll sheep and a relatively light hunting pressure, so only a couple dozen trophy animals get yanked maybe that's not really that big an effect. Yeah. And, and the benefits in the local populations are still going to be so great that right. it keeps going. But if you're talking about hunting pressure where you're really taking a sizable proportion of the top animals, then yeah, you, <laughs> that would apply very strong selection to the males to not have that last curl. We do that with fisheries. One of the problems we have with things like Atlantic cod populations is gill nets catch the big animals. The small ones slip through. So we tend to selectively harvest the older big fish keep growing as they get, you know this better than me, Sam, they get, they keep growing as they get older. So big fish are also older fish. So we're selectively harvesting the biggest and the oldest fish on a very large scale. When you consider the scope of the Atlantic cod fisheries and the numbers of ships and the numbers of fish that they're taking. And there's really good evidence over the last 30, 50 years that the animals have both evolved to grow more slowly, so they stay smaller, 
and they've started reproducing at a smaller size and a younger age. So they're beginning to reproduce smaller than they used to because all the big guys are being pulled out. It's the small ones that stumbled on a way to reproduce early that are now winning. They're small enough to get through the gill nets and they're breeding. Those are the ones producing the offspring. So the population's evolving, you know, in a direction that's not so great for the fisheries industry, but it makes a lot of biological sense. We're applying selection by taking the big ones. The smaller ones start doing better. The population evolves towards a smaller size. What else you got, Yanni? Um, on, a, on animal weapons? No, on, yeah, like any like concluders, man. I saw you typing away over there. No, oh, that was my question there was about if we knew where the arms race was. Oh, you asked about elk. where we were in animals. You can see in a lot of animals that the sneak tactics are already there. You study their behavior and you can find the sneaky males or the, the what do you call them? Precocious the jacks, males. The precocious males in the salmon. <clears throat> so in a way, you know you're already partway into that cycle. And by definition, if you picked it because it's got a huge weapon, it's probably already pretty far in. But But there is a fun twist there. We've known about sneaky males for 40, 50 years. I mean, it's not a new aspect of animal behavior, but nobody had ever connected it to an arms race before. Seeing the sneaky males as the beginning of the end, the sort of beginning right. of the collapse was totally new. And I got oh. that idea from the military. And the reason is because these things you brought, the, it's because it takes a long time. We can see arms races there. We see species with huge antlers. That's why I try to study these things in the first place. It's like, what the hell is happening in that beetle or this fly or that ungulate? We pick them because they've got the structures. We know something's going on. And we can infer from that that they're partway into this cycle. But we never actually get to see it collapse. But the military does. They've got really good records all the way through. They know why arms races collapse. They know why the, the arms race with the Napoleon era sailing galleons collapsed. It was fire ships. Once that, you know, you could t set these things on fire, it was over. It was game over. They were done. We know about ironclad battleships. They know what started the arms race. They know how they got bigger and bigger and bigger. They know how nations sort of exploded in their attempts to build bigger and more of these battleships. And then they know why they became obsolete. It was submarines. It was a sneaky beetle. Little beetle goes underground, mines his way into the tunnel. Submarines sneak under the surface and they can sink even the biggest, best battleships from underwater. It's cheating. The admirals hate submarines. It's <laughs> anathema to them. It's dishonorable. It's like breaking the rules exactly what it is. It's breaking the rules. But once you've got submarines out there, you change the game and suddenly the really big battleships are obsolete. And so today it's not then an you accident. Have to have battleships and submarines. Well, so what we have are strike groups. We have our own submarines and we surround our carriers now, which are the, the, the focus instead of the battleships, it's the carriers now. We have to surround them with a strike group. You'll, we would never send a carrier anywhere by itself. It only exists in a bubble that is created by the cruisers and the destroyers and the submarines. And the reason we need all that other stuff is because of submarines from the other side. So, so the military figured out that changes in technology that broke the rules, that cheated, were the things that collapsed an arms race. And they had studied it over and over again from the ancient Mediterranean through the sailing warships, the ironclad battleships, aircraft, all these systems had been worked out by military scholars. And over and over again, it's the sneaky, the cheaters that collapse the system. And so what was fun for me, here I am a biologist reading all this military stuff, was to turn around and say, hey, we've got cheaters. We've known that forever. Oh, they're sneaky. I even found them as a grad student in my dung beetles, the sneaky males. But putting the two pieces together and saying, wait a minute, maybe the sneakers are the collapse of the arms race in the animal systems too, that's new. We don't have a good way to test it yet 
because animal systems take long enough that we rarely ever get to catch it in action. So it's sort of a leap of faith at this point. It's an hypothesis that needs to be tested. But it's one of the ideas I put forward in that book, and it came from crossover between the military literature and the animal literature. And again, it's, it's fun and it's only possible because these extreme weapons are so similar. The animal weapon story, pretty much everything you could say about elk antlers or caribou antlers, you could apply verbatim to aircraft carriers or F-35 strike fighters today. I mean, the parallels are so deep at every level that now we can go back and forth between the literatures and each side can learn from the other. Sam, what do you got? Oh, you got a good grade when you took his class. So you don't you can't bring that up. You can't well, like, bring no, it I really up feel anyway. like I deserved a better grade. <laughs> um, man, so many so many things. One one thing I was I was curious about uh, per, perusing the book and you know thinking about animal animal weapons um, was and, and you know obviously my my mind gravita- gravitates towards the ungulates and the the antlers and everything. I was curious about non-typical antler configurations and and if if that is adaptive in some way and in I I'm wondering if if perhaps that is is some form of of cheating that it's a different configuration that might hmm. be able to um be defeat like yeah, the, the standard because I wouldn't it's, call it cheating because they're still right, paying the price. Right. They're I'm, still producing I'm just antlers. thinking, I'm but thinking no, out no, loud but, here. Yeah. But I'm going to take your idea and run with it. Yeah. What I would call it is variation. Mm-hmm. So again, all these populations start out with differences among individuals. Mutations pop up here and there. And if they happen to affect the way the antlers are developing, then you get a variant on the theme. The antlers are a little bit different. The tines bend. Who knows what it is that's different? You've all seen crazy mutant antlers, sometimes it's it's a genetic change. It's literally a heritable mutation in the genomes of these animals that affects the way they grow. And there's pretty good evidence of that. I don't know how many of you collect sheds, but probably all of you do. There's some neat places where you can show that the same bull produces the same mutant form of the antler year after year. And often you can find kids and grandkids in the same area that have the same variant. So some of these sort of defective antlers are heritable. They're, they're produced somehow by something in the genome that's passed on. Other times, who knows, it could be an injury to the cells or a burn or something that's not passed on. But, but either way, they're perturbations. They're variations on the theme. That's the raw material that evolution works on. Right. I would expect most of the time they're not going to work that well. You know, thousands to millions of years of honing antler shape and you go off in some wonky direction and probably it's not going to function as well most of the time. But every now and then, it might. And all of a sudden, you've got something that's better. And you might have an edge because now you've got a twist that nobody else has. And that can really take off. And now your kids and grandkids. And so what will happen is you'll start doing better because you've got that twist or the new tine or whatever it is. And over time, across generations, if you're doing well enough, the population is going to evolve towards the point where everybody's got that new thing. And this may be the kind of process that Geist would talk about, but none of us ever get to actually see, of how you go. Like, why, why does a white-tailed deer and a mule deer have, you know, antlers with the same number of tines, but they branch differently? Who, who knows? 
But it might have been something like that ancestrally that sent one population off on a direction where they had a slightly different configuration than before. And so what you're talking about is the raw material that I would argue sets the stage for evolution of new shapes or new types of weapons. When we look across beetles or you look across cervids or you look across antelope, it's really clear to us that the weapons change a lot. They don't just get big, they change in form. So there's all kinds of crazy differences in weapons. And that's sort of the big unknown mystery we're still trying to figure out. We don't have a good reason to explain why there's a thousand different kinds of beetle horns. If beetle horns are good and bigger is better, why don't they all have the same kind of horn? I can't tell you. I spent years trying to answer this stupid question. I can't tell you why two sister species of beetles have totally different shapes of horns. They're in tunnels. They're doing the same thing. They're fighting the same kinds of fights. Everything else about their biology is the same. So why the hell does one of them have horns coming off the thorax and another one have a bent set of horns coming off the head? We don't know. But, but, but these kinds of things have to start with what you're talking about. Differences, you know, those crazy variants that pop up and in some set, set of circumstances in some population, it just works. Whatever it is about it, it's better. And that spreads. Here's my last question for you. Okay. Um, what's the explanation of, like, like how did it come to be that's bad start. Yeah, that's a real bad start. <laughs> All right. It's a real bad start. Here we go. How would it come to be? Uh, what is the advantage of losing your antlers? Or you know what I mean? Yeah. Cost. Like, Think of the why price. drop them. And then oh, re- I thought you meant like no, evolutionarily. No. Why would I get no, rid of? No, no, no. Why? No. Why? This how one, how so would it come? Corinne warned me. You might ask me that, and I was like, yeah. Oh shit! I don't know the answer to that. Like, what's I the advantage? Wrote, like, how did it come to be that they like that they shed their antlers so and regrow them, and, and say, things with horns don't? I don't know. And I quick, because we've got some really good biologists here at University of Montana. And so I instantly, as soon as I got that last night, I was like, oh my God, I don't know the answer to that. I quick wrote Mark Hevelwhite, who's a phenomenal, ungulate yeah. biologist here, really good biologist. It's like, he'll know. I don't think anybody knows. I can think of a hundred He flipped it around. He said, tell me why, why, why don't, you know, why don't the bovids shed their antlers every year? Six of one, half dozen of the other. Why, why are you asking the question one way and not the other? But the fact is, we don't know. I did a quick search on the literature. We know a lot about the mechanisms, sort of how they do it. So I could say, oh, they shed their antlers because these animals are queuing into photo period and the hormones are changing. And when the steroid hormones levels drop, the cells senesce and it all falls fine. We know a lot about the cellular machinery. There was a beautiful new paper that just came out in Science like last week uh, where they sequenced the genomes of like 20 cervid species and they're able to look, and a bunch of antelope and bovid species, and they're able to look at the cellular level of how these horns grow and figure out the genes and the pathways. A beautiful set of studies. So we know a lot about how antlers grow and about how they fall off and start regrowing again. But nobody has a clue sort of for the adaptive significance or ultimate evolutionary explanation why at some point in the past, in the ancestor of the cervids, some idiot that shed its antlers and had to go through the whole process (laughs) and grow it back again, why those individuals did better and persisted when the other individuals don't. We don't know. People that that write into us. Well, let me tell you a couple of the people that write into us like to throw out there. All right. This comes up often. I will take a stab, but let me hear what they say. Um... And again, you don't know, like we don't know the answer, but people like to say like, well, I could, you know, imagine this, right? So one is uh, you could imagine, this isn't the cause of why it happened, but you could imagine that it's a more, it's a constantly changing and much more responsive marker of your fitness. That is yeah. a great answer. Great. So whoever called that one in is on the money. That's a good one because we talked about honest signals. 
So in the Beatles, I told you it's like a suit of armor. Once you emerge as an adult, you're stuck. So the horn size is a really good signal of what kind of a stud you were as a grub, as a larva. But once you go through metamorphosis and you're an adult and you got your suit of armor, that's it. That's how you're doing right now. And so I could come out out of you know development with a huge horn because I'm a stud and another guy has a little horn because he's a wimp. But two months, three months later, I could have been fighting, fighting, fighting and not eating at all. I could be starved. I could be a shell. I could be riddled with disease. I've still got a huge horn. Yeah. You know, you can't tell. So over time, it becomes uncoupled with the sort of instantaneous condition and dominance and status of the male. And so redoing it each year makes a lot of sense as a way to keep the signal honest. The other thing is they're expensive to carry around. So you look at birds with bright colors, they get rid of them. As soon as, as, soon as the breeding season's done, they molt all those bright feathers out. They go drab. Why stand out like a sore yeah, thumb predation. and carry all this yeah. crap around behind you when you don't have to? So the Here's, other possible argument is you only get, use it when you need one. it. You only produce it when you need it and then you get rid of it. Oh, I got you. You know, during the rut, you've got it. Then you throw it away and you don't have to carry it around. And, and going but, into winter when it's hard to carry it around. Yep. And, and a twist on that that would be consistent with that is a study that, that I got to be a peripheral part of that Mark Hebblewhite was also part of. And and one of his students, a beautiful study that came out looking at the, the Yellowstone elk and wolf population dynamics. And they showed that the elk actually keep their antlers longer than most of the other cervids. So they're not getting rid of them and being hornless or antlerless all winter. They're holding on to them all the way through until March. You know, people who collect sheds know this until the end of March, early April, that's when the elk shed. So then what, right? Why are you carrying this thing around all winter? If you can get rid of it, why not get rid of it as soon as you're done with it? In this case, the secondary benefit of having the antlers is that it protects these bulls from wolves. And so they have a beautiful study showing that it, the bulls that drop their antlers early, even just a couple days earlier than other bulls in the population, get targeted and hammered by the wolves because they can't defend themselves the same way. Really? And so, so wow. again, it comes back to costs and benefits, but here's this expensive thing and you actually keep it all winter if you're an elk because it helps protect you against wolves. And then you got to turn around and use it during the rut. So now we're stuck with that question of why get rid of it and grow the whole thing again. You'll know, you'll and know, that may be a legacy. It might have been early on that it made a lot of sense. And early on, they were getting rid of the cost. And then they were regrowing it and keeping the signal honest. And then only sort of secondarily in places where the major predators or things like wolves did some lineages like elk secondarily essentially hold on to it for longer and longer, in which case they're stuck. It would make more sense if you could design an elk from scratch to have them hold on to the antlers like a bighorn sheep would. But we're, you know, that's part of evolution is you get the legacy, you get the carryover, the baggage that comes with you in your genome. They're carrying with them a legacy of having to throw it away and regrow it each year. So they put it off, put it off, put it off, ditch it, turn around and regrow it fast. And that's the best they can do. I don't know. Good question. A couple other guys threw this one out where... They're talking about, um, you know, they break. And so it allows you to regenerate all the time instead of snapping it off and being screwed for I'm the rest of your, your life. I'm liking your audience. That's another and it and, and Yeah, because a beetle up, breaks his horn and it's gone. A guy I mean, it's broken shark, for the rest of his life. Yeah, shark teeth. Yeah, right? constantly He's regrowing. Con so, because we were talking about like, how come nothing else? We we're trying to think of other stuff besides cervids, right? That yeah. develop a weapon and lose the weapon. And someone's like, well, you could kind of look at just the constant replacing of teeth in a shark. Yeah, you get the same thing in insects. So nymphal stage grasshoppers are all chewing away on leaves and the leaves are often like sandpaper and it grinds down the edges on their mouth parts, but then they molt. 
and they throw away the old, they start with a new clean set and they can chew, 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 chew. And there's sort of this race for time. If the plants get more and more sand in their, in their leaf tissues, then they can grind down the mouth parts. And if they can grind down the grasshopper mouth parts fast enough, they starve to death before they make it to the next molt. <laughs> so it's like this <laughs> race. But if they make it to the molt, they got a clean set. New set of mandibles, sharp blades, they're at it again. So yeah, that would be an insect analogy to the shark's teeth. That was fun. That's it. Hey, this is fun. It's hot in here, but this is great. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. Um, thank you. And you got like so animal. Oh weapons. wait, wait, wait! I get to plug it, don't I? I've no, got well, a I'm, gonna have, book I'm, I'm plugging. Okay. This, I'm gonna plug this to tee you up. All right. So that you can plug your next one. Go for it. So it's plug time. Doug Emlin, author of Animal Weapons: The Evolution of Battle, is the subtitle for the book. And you got a new version. I do. I have a version of it that's the backstory. That's sort of the adventures doing research on animal weapons. And how does somebody who starts out with Muddy Beats Boots Biology in a rainforest on dung beetles end up visiting an aircraft carrier or giving a talk in Washington, D.C. to top brass from the military? It's sort of a why basic science is relevant in surprising ways kind of story. And it's aimed at teenagers, sort of 10 to 12, 12 to 14-year-old kids. And, and so are- it's narrative nonfiction. It's called Beetle Battles, One Scientist's Journey of Adventure and Discovery. And it comes out in December. Beetle battles. Beetle battles. If you got kids, look for it. I think it's orange on the cover. <laughs> it is. We just saw it. Yeah. yeah. And you love Thanks. it. You love the color. I don't love the color, but I love the book. <laughs> I had a really good time getting to unpack that story, and I had a really good editor to work with me. It was fun. It's really fun telling that story. Okay. Thanks, you guys. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, Dave. we got a couple quick things. Uh, oh, yeah. Ready? I'm ready. Um, do us a favor. We bring you all this free stuff. The show, right? You get to listen. Um, you got to do us a favor and go subscribe to our newsletter. You need to go to www.themeateater.com and there you'll be, you'll, you'll see how to sign up for the newsletter. That's real important for us. Then you can kind of track everything that's going on with articles, podcasts, recipes, all kinds of stuff like that. Yeah. Then once a week, you get a newsletter. And how often, Sam, would they get to read something that you wrote? Uh, about every two weeks. Same typically. Yeah, we we spend a lot of time on those newsletters, man. It's not just slapped together. That's we're trying to bring really good, high quality stuff to to everybody, and we're tinkering with it all the time to make it even better. And I think uh, most folks who follow it really enjoy it. Yeah. So get the newsletter, and that, that's like everything that goes on, um, new products, everything that goes on in our space. And also, we haven't asked for a long time. Do us a favor too, and go on uh, go on iTunes. And click the rightmost star. Give us a five-star review. Need that. And then you can follow us on social media. You can find me um, on Instagram, at Steven Ranella. You can find Yanni on there. He used to be the Latvian hunter <laughs> on Instagram. Now he's just regular Yanni. Yeah, I didn't want to make it confusing. So I went to Giannis Poutelis. <laughs> he's at Janice Poodlis. I think there's an underscore in there. Oh, really? Why do you got to confuse it? It was early in Instagram, I guess, when I started messing around with it. I saw a lot of other people that seemed to like have to have that underscored for a space in their name. Like yours is just all straight through, right? No spaces at all. Yeah, because I nabbed I nabbed mine up early. What probably happened is you went to get Janice Poodleus and it had been taken. No. Nope. So you had to do the real. That's when you do the real. Yeah. Authentico. Anyhow. So that didn't happen to you. You just did an underscore for the hell of it. I thought that's what you did. Yeah. No way, man. Try to Just look make it clean. Sam, how do they find you on the Instagram? It's Sam Lundgren Media. 
No underscores, no nothing. Doug, you mess around on social media, you too busy. <laughs> Apparently not enough. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care. I, I think better of you if you don't. I don't. Oh, I like you more now. I have an author page, <laughs> but I don't do much with it. All right. Professor Emlin. Thank you. University of Montana, my alma mater. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Sam's too. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Okay, everyone, thanks for listening again. And if I said it once, I said it a thousand times. Please go check out our feature-length documentary about hunting in America today called Stars in the Sky. You can find it at starsintheskyfilm.com. It is available for streaming and download. Again, do us yourself a good turn. Do us a good turn. Stars in the Sky. Find it at starsintheskyfilm.com. You can stream it. You can download it. And you can watch it again and again. Thank you. Hey, I'm excited to share our newest sponsor here on the Meat Eater Podcast, which is Poncho Outdoors. The reason I'm excited is I buy their shirts anyways. Dude, they make some good shirts. And they even have an option where if you're like a skinny dude, you can click like the skinny dude thing. It's great. Based in Austin, Texas, Poncho is committed to crafting the world's best outdoor shirts for men. Poncho is only sold on their own website. So head over to ponchooutdoors.com, use code MEATEATER, for a free hat or t-shirt with any purchase of a shirt. Poncho offers free shipping and returns, so you can try them out risk-free. This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. It is a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that they need, and that meets them where they are and helps them get through challenges. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible. It's simple to use. You can connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.